What is up, everyone, and welcome back to another Wednesday edition of Interesting Facts with Chase, uh, your special show midweek release here. And we got a pretty badass episode for you today. I got to say that, you know, back home smoke legal. We get small slaps than the Beatles, dog. Foreign shit running on diesel. Play it with my name, that shit is lethal, dog. Don Corleone. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. That's a throwback right there. Isn't it funny you go back like a year or two? <laughs> like something's already like a throwback from like a year. Pokemon had their 25th anniversary, which was pretty sick. You know, I want to be the very best. No one ever was. Pretty sick. Pretty sick, man. That takes me back every time. I get those goosebumps every time I come around. Oh shit. What is this? It's fucking Factor Melody with uh, Chase and Josh. <laughs> just kidding. No, Josh ain't here today. This is just interesting facts with Chase. But got to tell you guys, I got a pretty awesome episode for you guys today. Really funny because I always kind of say... You know, this episode's gonna be short here and there, right? But turns out, I kept researching and researching and finding out more information that I didn't know that you guys should know. And this one's probably gonna be the length of probably a regular episode too. Uh, so we're gonna see how that goes. But really cool stuff today because as we got in with the episodes with Josh and I uh, last week and the week before, you know, the three escaped prisoners from Azkaban. The big one that comes to mind that plays such a huge role uh, down the stretch here that everyone thinks about is uh, Bellatrix Lestrange and uh, the Lestrange family, man. It, they are, you know, she she's literally a bad bitch. <laughs> That's a bad bitch. <laughs> yeah, she's... Shout out to Helena Bottom Carter, though. She played her role down to the T, though. But even in the books, I got to say, I feel like Bellatrix is even worse in the books. And uh, that's how we're going to kind of, you know, kick off today. And we got a really cool episode today because it's going to be talking about a lot of the most powerful witches and wizards of all time good and definitely bad still going bad on a many way <laughs> all i know is really the don corleone song i almost had to sit there and think about the lyrics for a minute i was like oh shit what if i gotta look these lyrics up i don't know this part all i know is the don corleone <laughs> yeah that's my favorite part drake's the man dude drake's the man see i'm like so way back in the day thinking about what was uh it was like started from the bottom now we're here or he had last name ever first name greatest like a sprained ankle boy ain't nothing to play with oh yeah still got it i think i was what like from high school or something then it was like uh, college for the started from the bottom and now we're here and then the other one was like way back it's like <laughs> going way back lean back lean back anyways guys so we're just gonna go ahead and dive right into it today um so First thing I'll kind of start off with is let's just go ahead and start talking about the three escaped prisoners uh, from Azkaban and the two biggest ones that really come to mind out of those. Um, the first two ones uh, that really come to mind out of those are you have, of course, Bellatrix Lestrange and then you have uh, Augustus Rockwood. So a little bit about Augustus Rockwood real quick and then we're going to dive into Bellatrix because it's really going to kick us off for a whole kind of big roller coaster arc really literally a roller coaster arc that we'll have today talking about really some of the most evil uh witches and wizards that are out there and then we will have 
you know, a, a few, a very few and far between <laughs> some of the some of the ones that are looked at as great. So, uh, but Augustus Rockwood, right? So he was born in 1964, former unspeakable. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, actually worked for, in the Department of Ministry, uh, in the Ministry of Magic and the Department of Mysteries. Um, he's a dark wizard and Death Eater loyal to Voldemort. Uh, during the first Wizarding War, he actually uh, worked as a spy for Voldemort. And he was a comrade of Igor Kakarov. Uh, and was arrested and imprisoned in Azaban, as you know, along with Bellatrix Strange and the other one we'll get into in just a second here. Um, and, you know, Igor Kakarov, if you think back to Goblet of Fire, when we were talking about that, remember he confessed all those names when he was in the courtroom, right? So that's, it, it goes to show, like, this guy was definitely no pushover if he was able to be mentioned by Igor Kakarov. Um, so Bellatrix Lestrange, a little bit about her, right? She was born in 1951 in Great Britain. Pure blood a witch, eldest daughter of Cygnus and Drula Black, a cousin of Reculus and Sirius Black, and elder sister of Andromeda Tonks, which we talked about that a little bit. Andromeda Tonks is Nymphadora's mom. So, you know, we talk about Nymphadora and all her backstory. And uh, she's also related to Narcissa. Uh, Malfoy. So it's just funny how we piece all this thing together because people forget that pure blood houses, you know, it's kind of like the whole Game of Thrones thing with the Targaryens, right? They really intermingle, I guess I would say. You know, they uh, they marry each other because they want to keep that blood pure. But uh, she started at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry in 1962 and was sorted into the Slytherin house. Bellatrix was. She became a Death Eater a little bit after she actually graduated Hogwarts. Uh, she is known as one of the most sadistic wizard witches of all time, as you you all know. Uh, and Voldemort's one of his most loyal followers. Bellatrix, his husband, was Rodolphus Lestrange. So this is going to kind of kick us off into the Lestrange family house. So that was the third one, remember? Uh, so... Uh, Bellatrix and her husband Rodolphus Lestrange, her brother-in-law was Rebastian Lestrange, and Barty Crouch Jr. was captured and tortured um, uh, with the Aurors, Frank and Alice Longbottom, uh, seeking information about Voldemort's whereabouts. So remember, those, those there, those were the ones that were sentenced in the courtroom because uh, they tortured and captured Frank and Alice Longbottom. So that was Bellatrix Lestrange, uh, Rodolphus Lestrange, and, um, you know, of course, you had Barty Crouch Jr. as well. So those three were definitely a big, uh, big, big important moments there. Um, she was sentenced uh, with four Death Eaters to Azkaban, of course, uh, escaped with Rodolphus and Rebastian from Azkaban. So um, she got out, of course, and Rodolphus, a little bit about him. So he was born in 1964 and was known as one of the most loyal Death Eaters along with Bellatrix and Barty Crouch Jr. So he escaped 14 years later with Bellatrix, of course. He was sorted into the Slytherin house, just like Bellatrix was in Hogwarts. Uh, and he was actually even known to be friends at Hogwarts with future Death Eaters. That really became a big, big part there. And those are Bellatrix the Strange, of course. Um, and then you do, who was actually Bellatrix Black at the time. A lot of people forget that. She married into the Lestrange family. 
Evan Rozier, which we'll talk a little bit about the Rozier family, and then, of course, my boy, uh, Servish Snape. Rebastian, so a little bit about him. He was born in 1964 and was the brother of Adolphus Lestrange, uh, brother-in-law of Bellatrix Lestrange. He's known as one of the most loyal Death Eaters, of course, sorted into the Slytherin house, just like the others, and was put on trial with Bellatrix and Barty Crouch Jr., for being a Death Eater and participating in the torture of Frank and Alice Longbottom, and they were all sentenced to Azkaban, so just like the other ones there. Uh, Evan Rozier, he was born in 1953 and 1966. Uh, he was the pure-blood son of Rozier, uh, sorted into the Slytherin house, no surprise there, just like the others. He became a Death Eater after he graduated Hogwarts, just like the others, but he was the one that was killed by Alistair Moody, after resisting arrest. We talked about him a little bit in A Goblet of Fire and some of the interesting facts there. Um, they think he was possibly related to Druella. That, remember, we said is related to Bellatrix Lestrange. He was part of a group of aspiring Death Eaters at Hogwarts when he was actually there, so that's how he's a little bit different than the other ones. He actually started his path to wanting to support Lord Voldemort, Voldemort when he was actually in school. They included in that group was Wilkes, Avery, and Mulciver. And we'll get into them uh, just here in a little bit. Uh, so Evan, he was actually blasted into pieces um, by Moody and was killed. Uh, and then Moody, of course, you know, as he was attacking him, that's how he got his nose blasted off. So uh, Evan blasted off Moody's nose, and Evan was wound up killed by Moody because he killed him during an engaged in the duel when he was resisting arrest. Wilkes uh, was born in the 1950s or 1960s. It's not exactly sure when he was born. Um, he was gifted in the dark arts or dueling, was sorted into the Slytherin house. Uh, he became a Death Eater after he graduated and was killed by Aurora's during the first Wizarding War. Avery was also known as Avery II. So, he was sorted into the Slytherin house when he attended Hogwarts in the 1970s. He had a dark sense of humor with magic, is what a lot of them would say. Actually, Lily, uh, who we know as Lily Potter, it was Lily Evans at the time, is one that actually was quoted with this. But, um, he actually was best friends with Mulciver, and he was known as being sadistic as far as his dark humor goes at uh, Hogwarts. Uh, he was eventually apprehended by Aurora's during the first Wizarding Ward, War, and according to Sirius, uh, he wormed his way out of trouble since he pleaded guilty to the Imperious Curse, and he was granted mercy and not sent to Azkaban. So, uh, very similar to Peter Pettigrew kind of guy except for with a more sadistic kind of, um, like the bully in school that's really afraid, um, really, really doesn't have any guts, but is trying to prove that they have little man syndrome or trying to prove themselves, um, but really can't stand up to anybody, one of those kind of people. And he was granted mercy, not sent to Azkaban because he sold people out. Uh, he also didn't search for Voldemort after uh, Voldemort's downfall. Avery I, so this is Avery II's father. He was born between 1926 and 1932. He was sorted into the Slytherin house. He was a member of Tom Riddle's gang. And 
the Slug Club, which we're going to talk about that uh, when we get into Half-Blood Prince. So we're not going to talk about that today because we don't want to spoil anything. But that's how far this goes back and how this kind of all connects, right? Um, so you notice Avery II, uh, because of kind of the influence of his father, he was already really tied up into that whole Voldemort air, uh, air, area there because of the way he had that relationship with Tom Riddle already. Cygnus Black, so also known as Cygnus Black III, he was born in 1938 and died in 1992. He was a pureblood, sorted into the Slytherin house of Hogwarts. He was the youngest son of Pollux Black and Irma Crab, and the brother of Walburga Alfhard, uh, who was actually blasted off the family tapestry. He had three daughters, uh, Bellatrix Lestrange in 1951, uh, Andromeda, who is Tonks' mother. They're not sure the exact year on this, but this was sometime between 1951 and 1955 Andromeda was born. And then Narcissa Black uh, was born in 1955. He's also, of course, who we talked about on our last Interesting Facts episode. A little bit how funny this ties in, bridges everything. He is the grandfather of Delphini Diggory, which we talked about Delphini, who is also a Voldemort's heir. Um, which, you know, I don't like to consider the Cursed Child really part of the true Harry Potter franchise, but it's a, it's a cool, interesting story. Um, but he is the grandfather of Nymphandora Tonks, Tonks as well, and Draco Malfoy. And he is, you know, we talked about also on our interesting facts last week, which, like I said, I don't like to consider this part of the main franchise, but he is the great-grandfather of Scorpius Malfoy, who is in The Cursed Child. Uh, Druella Black was born in 1955. She was, has always, she's of pure blood. Um, she's the wife of Cygnus Black, who, of course, is Bellatrix's uh, mother. Um, she's a member of the Rosier family originally and uh, had three daughters with Cygnus, who we mentioned were Bellatrix, Andromeda, and Narcissa. Uh, she is the mother-in-law of Rodolphus Lestrange, and Druella is also related to Gellert Grindelwald's lieutenant, lieutenant Vinda Rosier and Death Eater Evan Rosier, which we talked about Evan Rosier but now we're going to really get into Vinda Rosier. And this is really going to kick us off today because what this is going to wind up tying into is we're going to start going into Gellert Grindelwald a little bit. Not too much because, of course, a lot of his, that back history uh, with Albus Dumbledore and, and Gellert uh, is tied into Deathly Hallows. So we're going to save a lot of that for Deathly Hallows, but this is going to really show you know his loyal followers he really was something sick like he was basically like almost like a hitler like kind of rose from the bottom of the ranks all the way to the top and kind of built his following um it wasn't as much like voldemort how he already had people siding with the idea of pure bloods um and you know especially in the second wizarding world war because voldemort was already came to power the first time but Gellert Grindelwald really built everything from the ground up this sick way he did it. And this is going to show how loyal like his followers were. And also really playing to the fact of a lot of people even consider him the third most powerful wizard of all time. Um, some even consider him the second. 
I wouldn't because I'm going to tell you about two other wizards today that are pretty bad as well. Um, and I mean bad in a bad way. <laughs> like, I mean, there is still going bad on them anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a pretty rough. But um, I'm going to tell you about all that today. So, uh, Vinda Razier. So, she was born in 1927. All this right here about Gellert Grindelwald that you'll see, a good bit of it, this is all from Fantastic Beasts and also um, the crimes against uh, Grindelwald that you can watch. So you can see this all in there as well. Um, most of the stuff, at least, you'll be able to see in there. But uh, Vinda Rozier, so she was born in 1927, shown in Fantastic Beasts and Crimes Against Grindelwald. Um, she was a loyal, devoted follower to Gellert Grindelwald. She was his lieutenant in 1927 when she became his lieutenant. Um, and then, just like Grindelwald, uh, she spoke about killing every non-pure-blood person. Gellert Grindelwald, though, told her it was not necessary because the burden will always be a necessary task because there is too many mixed bloods and it's too impossible to actually distinguish who is pure blood and who is half blood and they'll always keep producing so Gellert Grindelwald um, he was more focused uh, versus eliminating the pure blood race he was more really becoming they describe it as a master of death which that uh, plays more into Deathly Hollows so we won't get too into that but really like make an empire uh, just like if you had uh, Vader or like Palpatine kind of really um, but so uh, Vinda uh, so she uh, worked in the French Ministry of Magic for a little bit she actually allowed uh, Abernathy who is um, under, under we've talked about Abernathy a little bit before but under the disguise of an old lady to leave the ministry with a stolen Lestrange family box from the records room uh, she presented Grindelwald with a skull hookah which showed everyone visions of violence against non-purebloods and it's exactly what it sounds like uh, I was wondering about that too for a minute but it's actually a human skull that you can smoke hookah out of that will give people visions um, and all this is going to make sense towards the end when we get towards the end of this episode because everything's going to kind of bridge together and you're going to start piecing together from all these different uh, point of views uh, so which is cool because you know we're big point of view people on this show um, so Grindelwald tested his followers by asking them to step into a circle of fire to test their faith Vinda wound up stepping through the fire and was not harmed uh, to show her devout loyalty to Grindelwald and we'll talk about this spell later on but the fire had black flames when it was conjured by Grindelwald, and this was actually done at what was called his rally. Now, um, she was known as being mysteriously charming and malevolent, which later she was an accomplice with Caro and other acolytes, which acolytes are what they actually call the followers of Grindelwald, and they're not known as acolytes until they wound up stepping through this black fire because it tested their loyalty. Um, uh, and uh, non-magic um, what all she also did was there was a non-magic couple who owned a home and was using it as a hideout 
and well, there was a non-magic couple that lived in this apartment, right? And what happened was Grindelwald wanted to use it as a hideout. So she went with a number of other accomplices that we'll talk about in just a bit here uh, and actually murdered um, these two people and the infant that was there with a group of Grindelwald's acolyte followers. Uh, She was known for apparition. She is argued, actually is argued as Gellert Grindelwald's most loyal servant. Uh, Some argue that she was even more extreme than Gellert Grindelwald and would proudly state that she wanted to exterminate all non-magic people openly. Um, Caro was part of that group. So she was the one that was an accomplice uh, with um, Vinda that went and murdered that that couple and their baby. So she was born in 1927. She was a dark witch and a member of the Gellert Grindelwald's alliance and one of the devoted alkalites that formed his inner circle. She accompanied Grindelwald to Paris and murdered the non-magic couple and their infant son with the killing curse on Gellert Grindelwald's orders. So she was the one that actually killed them with the spell. Um, Vinda, of course, was just there. But Vinda Rosier accompanied her. After murdering the family in their house, uh, they were using the house as a temporary headquarters uh, and a safe haven for acolytes in Grindelwald to hide from aurorers that were searching for them at this time as they searched for Credence Barebone. And we're going to talk about who that is. Um, so she attended the rally of uh, Gellert Grindelwald, which the rally took place at Cimetière uh, de Pierre. Uh, I'm not the best at French, but it's uh, Cimetière du Pierre uh, La Chasse. And the Lestrange Mausoleum is where it was. But it's in Paris, France. But um, all my people from France uh, correct my pronunciation on that. You know, I'm not the best with names, unfortunately. Um, but it was the Lestrange Mausoleum is where it occurred. And where... Gellert Grindelwald conjured the black flames around him and told his followers, you know, if you're really devoted to me, step through these flames. And this is going to test your loyalty, but step through these flames and show your loyalty to me. And they were supposed to step through these flames uh, without fear of being harmed. And if they had any fear whatsoever, they were instantly incinerated uh, because of the spell. Um, this is all seen, of course, in the crimes of Grindelwald. Um, and, you know, and Kara was also known as gifted in the dark arts and apparition as well, uh, just like Vinda was. Um, in Cimetière de Pierre Lachoise, uh, Lachoise, L-A-C-H-O-I-S-E, so correct me on that. But it's uh, the cemetery park located in the northeast side of Paris, France, which is the Lestrange Mausoleum is located there. It was nearly destroyed after Gellert Grindelwald set loose magical flames, which were contained by Nicholas Flamel, Porpentina Goldstein, Yusuf Kama, Thesis, and Newton's Commander, which we know two of those really well, right? We know Nicholas Flamel, or at least we know we've heard of him pretty well, going all the way back to Sorcerer's Stone, and he's mentioned a couple times after that, and we know he's going to play a little, a big, uh, decent role in Deathly Hallows. And Newton's Commander, we know him pretty well, uh, which we mentioned, because Fantastic Beast, and of course, you know, he has the book Fantastic Beast and Where to Find Them that Harry always has. 
Uh, so, the French Ministry of Magic Records Room. So here's kind of what happened for a little bit, right? Um, so, so it's described. I'm going to tell you a little bit about it, and then we'll kind of describe what happens here just a little bit later. But the French Ministry of Magic Records Room. So it's described as having tower, towering art doors in a beautiful atrium. The doors are carved out to look like trees. There's a desk guarding the doors and an archive, archivist that actually takes down people's names here, checks a record of every name in every family of people asking for access to the room to see if they're granted access. So you basically have to go through an entire background check uh, just to even be considered to go into this room. The room uh, is dark and has shelves that are carved out to look like trees. The trees hold rolls of parchment and prophecies on them. So very similarly, similar to what we'll get into next week on our Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix episode in part six as far as where they what happens in the actual um, British in the British Ministry of Magic over there but so a member what they would do is they would say their family name and use the circumorta spell and the shelves would shift and bring forth prophecies from family records if an archivist caught an intruder Madagots which we'll talk about them later on down the road this episode, of the French Ministry of Magic. So almost like their security, but it's not the security you're really thinking. Not exactly what they are, right? Are alerted, and the shelves would spin, turning into, their, turning into tree trunks. So they would spin continuously and turn into tree trunks to apprehend the intruders. The floor winds up retracting and exposes the intruders whereabouts uh, to the Madagots uh, so they can be captured. Um, Madagots use Ascendo uh, to cause the shelves to return back to normal position. The Lestrange family kept records in this room is why this was so important. Uh, the Lestrange family eventually relocated their records and left a note informing the reader of the new location. In September 1927, Mussolini, who is an archivist working in the records room, when Newt's commander and, Gold and Tina Goldstein, so Perpentina Goldstein that we just mentioned, she was also known as Tina Goldstein, pretended to be Letta Lestrange and her fiancé to access the Lestrange family records. Their purpose was to find out why Gellert Grindelwald was interested in Credence Barebone. The real Letta went into the records room intending to destroy the record of Corvus Lestrange's death. So now we know there's two different people we're trying to find out about, right? We got Credence Barebone and we got Corvus Lestrange. And we know something's up with them because Gellert's looking for Credence. And you got Corvus Lestrange, the records on him are trying, are, people are trying to destroy the records. And you have the Lestrange family trying to get rid of them in this very secret room that's very difficult to get into so it that's very well protected so some we know something's going on here right uh corvus lestrange's death before someone finds it and then so newt and tina were still there 
so they discovered that Newt and Tina were there, and Mussolini called for the Matagots because of the intrusion. The shelves tried to stop Newt and Tina uh, by descending into the ground and exposing their location, but Newt helped Letta and Tina escape by putting them in a suitcase and using the Zowu, which was one of his magical creatures, and I'll describe that to you a little bit later, basically like this massive lion thing that you've seen before on Fantastic Beasts. You just can't really place it right now, I'm sure, but I'm going to tell you all about it uh, later on this episode to get out of the ministry. So, And that's how he used, he used his Zowu to get rid of the Matagots to get out of it, so he could get out of the ministry uh, safely with them. Um, and this is all shown in Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes Against Grindelwald. Uh, the Lestrange family box, so what it was, and this is the one that, you know, basically contained their records, but... So it's located in the Lestrange Mausoleum, and it contains the Lestrange family tree. It's quoted as, A heavy box hidden in the corner of the mausoleum comes crashing to her through the dust. A series of clicks and cogs whirl, puzzle-like, it falls apart, describing the box. It's said to be an ornate box, contained uh, all of the Lestrange family history, including the tree that recorded the descendants of Corvius and Cyril Lestrange. Uh, Corvius and Cyril, uh, so, so they were the women in the Lestrange family too. Just to say this, so the women on the family tree were recorded actually as flowers, where the men uh, were recorded just by name, written on portraits. So I thought it was kind of interesting, just a cool way it was drawn out. Um, but so it was eventually owned by Corvus IV, this Lestrange family box, right? It is unknown if he built it or if it was an heirloom, but it was intended to be handed down to the next generation. But it ended up in the records room in the French Ministry of Magic, where it remained until Gellert Grindelwald ordered it to be moved to the Lestrange mausoleum in Saint-Mier du Pierre Le Chasse which we know exactly where that's going. That's going straight to Grindelwald's rally. So the skull hookah we talked about, just like I said, it's exactly what I was saying. It was, it's uh, made out of an actual human skull, and it belonged to Gellert Grindelwald. And when he smoked it, he would be allowed to see others uh, to see his vision. So like he could see visions, but it would show him off to everyone else. Um, the acolytes... Uh, were called Gellert Grindelwald's Acolytes. They were a devoted group of followers compromising the inner circle. Circle members uh, of the army would gather around dark uh, wizard Gellert Grindelwald. They accompanied Gellert Grindelwald in Paris in 1927 to assist with the plans of recruiting Credence Barebone. They killed that unknown couple. Uh, this group did the Acolytes, like I said, which was the innocent family, non-magic family. So they knew about magic, but non-magic family. Uh, they killed the couple and the infant uh, small child and used that apartment as headquarters. Uh, and during a rally in the Lestrange Mausoleum, Gellert Grindelwald conjured a circle of protective fire around himself and added an enchanted enchantment design to test the loyalty of his followers. Those who entered with complete fidelity and believed in his cause would survive. The, those who did not would be engulfed and perish. Members that passed safely became acolytes. Um, so remember we were talking about Westworld. 
is asking for what do you want fidelity <laughs> so awesome so badass but the members of this group and we'll talk about uh the ones you haven't heard of just a bit later so the members of their acolytes that passed through the black flamed circle unharmed uh, was abernathy caro craft mcduff nagel vinda rosier and then there was one unidentified acolyte um which the unidentified acolyte was crawl and crawl was said to have second thoughts as he died walking through the fire and it just engulfed him in flames and he incinerated in the black flames uh because he had second thoughts as he was starting to walk through and remember gellick grindelwald said if you're loyal to me you don't have any second thoughts you just come straight through this fire and follow me if you're truly loyal and crawl had second thoughts and he was that unidentified acolyte um, we're going to talk about Abernathy, Kraft, McDuff, and Nagel uh, later on. So the people that were there to try to stop him, a little bit about them. A huge part of the crimes uh, crimes of Grindelwald in Fantastic Beasts is uh, Yusuf Kama. Uh, he plays a huge role here, and you're going to see how this all pieces together later on. But So he was born in 1884. He was a pure-blood French wizard. He was of Senegalese ancestry and son of Lorena and Mustafa, Mustafa Kama. He had a half-brother. He was the half-brother of Letta Lestrange, um, which we talked about Letta just a minute ago in, uh, of course, you know, the records room. He claimed to be the last pure-blood in his family line, and he lived in the Kama mansion. So family was very well off. Yusuf's parents were associated with Corvus Lestrange. So you see how this is starting to come together because remember Corvus Lestrange, the Lestrange were trying to delete his family records from that records room. Uh, Corvus Lestrange who desired Lorena. In 1896, Corvus used the Imperious Curse to lure Lorena out of her home and abduct her. Yusuf tried to stop Corvus, but Lestrange cursed him. That was the last time Yusuf saw his mother, and Yusuf and his father later learned that Lorena died giving birth to Lestrange's daughter, Leta. Mustafa, his father, insane with grief, made Yusuf take an unbreakable vow to seek revenge by killing the person Lestrange loved most in the world. Yusuf first thought his intended victim or target was Letta, since she was at the time the only known close relative of the Lestranges, but later learned that Lestrange never loved his daughter at all. Yusuf learned Lestrange married Clarice, Clarice uh, Tremblay after Lorena's death, and while Lestrange didn't love his wife either, uh, so Clarice uh, Tremblay, and while Lestrange didn't love his wife either, he later in 1907 had a son with her named after himself, whom he loved more than anything, so Corvus II became Yusuf's target for revenge. Lestrange learned of Yusuf's vow of revenge and sent both of his children with the servant Irma Dugard to America. Because of Irma's weak magic, Yusuf couldn't trace her and Corvus seemed to have escaped him 
and we're going to talk about that in a little bit why she has such weak magic in 1927 Yusuf Kama was in on an mission and he tracked Credence Barebone to Paris so now we're trying to find out we're starting to find out a little bit more about these people these two people we've wondered about the whole time Yusuf was determined to track Credence down and kill him because he believed to be he believed him to be Corvus Lestrange the fourth so now we know who Yusuf's target really is now now that he's tracked down who the actual Corvus is he's trying to he's trying to take down um Yusuf uh so he wound up um uh so he believed him to be Corvus Lestrange the fourth who had uh in, he who had cursed uh tried to force Yusuf's mother into marriage he had heard rumors about Credence's identity and managed to locate Credence at the Circus Arcanus, where Nagini, the exact Nagini you're thinking of, <laughs> that we know so well. So Voldemort's, really, I guess you could almost say closest friend if he has those, right? But his closest, really, I would say com comrade or companion, I, I wouldn't say companion, but comrade maybe, or accomplice, right? Um, Nagini was at the circus and Nagini a lot of people don't know so we're going to talk about this again today talk about this today uh, Nagini is a maledictus um, so during Nagini's performance so at this time keep in mind Nagini was not a snake uh, Nagini what a maledictus is is it's a female curse uh, blood disorder is really what it is it's a, it's a female blood curse disorder uh, that causes you to have to transform into whatever it is that uh, basically you need to transform in like an animal that sort of thing um, and eventually the curse in your blood uh, the blood curse will wind up taking over uh, to where you have to permanently be as what you transform into which in Nagini's case as we found have found out is a snake uh so this is way before that and she is actually a woman that was in the circus arcanus during nagini's performance kama carefully observed the behavior of skindor who is the ringleader also the owner of the circus uh and he was provoking nagini when nagini turned into a snake she attacked skinder a moment later as a result of credence releasing animals from the cage Panic broke out in the circus, and the crowd began to run away. Credence and Nagini escaped from the circus, which prevented Yusuf from capturing the Obscurial. So now we're hearing the words Obscurial, and we talked about this before on our interesting facts. Remember when we were talking about Obscurials and like what happened in New York? Well, now you're starting to piece it together. So Credence is who they're actually after um, because he is that Obscurial. Uh, here and all the instances that he did have in New, York, in New York where it caused you know hundreds of muggles that have to be obliter obliterated for what they saw and how it just tore down buildings and killed people um, so that that's kind of like what's going on here why Gellert Grindelwald is looking for this guy so hearing the conversation between Aurora Port Pintina Goldstein, so also known as Tina Goldstein, and Skinder, 
he quickly realized the topic of conversation was barebone. Therefore, when the woman finished talking, he invited her to tea. So he winds up meeting Tina Goldstein, and basically they're just conversing uh, because he really wants to track down Corvus the Fourth. Uh, so he meets with Tina Goldstein. Eventually, Yusuf met Tina Goldstein and told her that he thought he was related to Credence. He offered to show her evidence. Kama lured Tina into a hideout into the sewers to show her notes in a, the Lestrange family tree drawn on sewer walls and then took Tina's wand and locked her there so she wouldn't interfere with his mission. Um, because, you know, remember with the, with the records, she was really trying to get that from where uh, they were trying to destroy that record box. Um, so he knew that was the only way to really bring her in uh, to get her out of the way, uh, standing in the way of killing uh, Corvus IV and, and tracking down Credence, which Credence at this moment, he believes is Corvus IV. So to make that clear, so that way that makes it a little bit more clear for you. He didn't want Tina or Newt or any of these guys getting in the way of him so he could kill this guy and fulfill his unbreakable vow. So Newt's commander eventually approached Yusuf in regards to missing whereabouts about Tina Goldstein and what happened to her. Yusuf decided to show Newt and Jacob that accompanied him where Tina was being held, which was in the sewers. In the sewers, Yusuf disarmed them both, locked Newt and Jacob in the chamber with Tina Goldstein. Yusuf told all three that he would release them after he killed Credence Barebone, who he believes, believed at the time was the son of Corvus. Uh, so that's so was the son really technically Corvus the fifth. So he believes Credence is Corvus the fifth right now and is trying to fulfill that unbreakable vow and needed Newt and Tina out of the way. So the wizard Zokwu uh, was locked in with them. Uh, Newt's Boke Truckle, remember we talked about Bow Truckles uh, and Hagrid's class in that episode in that air episode where we were talking about careful magical creatures and uh, Newt was so fond of Bow Truckles, uh, he even had that whole island, but so Newt used his Bow Truckle to pick the lock and escape Nicholas Flamel uh, which we talked about Nicholas Flamel before, like I said Nicholas Flamel examined Yusuf later and said Notice that he had taken that unbreakable vow and said the only way to, to get rid of it is you, he must kill. Like, you must kill this guy. Um, you have to kill Corbius V at this point, who they believe is Credence Barebone. Yusuf headed to the strange mausoleum on Pierre Lachasse Cemetery, which is where the rally was occurring. Soon after, Jacob, Credence, and Nagini arrived. Later, Tina, Newt, and Letta Lestrange were found in the tomb where they all wound up meeting up at the same place. Believing Credence was Corvus, Yusuf confessed to the story to the group, pulled out his wand, and uh, and pulled out his wand at Credence. Seeing his intent, Leda shouted that Corvus was dead and that she unintentionally killed him. So now we're kind of like, what what's going on here? The witch told the story of the adoption of Corvus in which she participated during a boat trip at sea. There was a storm that faced 
that forced passengers to evacuate to lifeboats. Leda swapped the baby, wanting to free free her brother, uh, that was actually her brother, with an unknown child, an Irma Dugard half-elf maid. So this explains why she only has so much magic. Get on a boat and sailed away, watching the other boats get sunk. Inadvertently, the one in which she had changed her brother, and then the conversation interrupted in the middle as an opening of the door of the next changer, chamber in which Gellert Grimdewald began his rally during this conversation. And we're going to go into that in just a minute. But basically what happened uh, to kind of finish the story there, and just so we're not, you know, you don't get lost right in the middle here, but you're going to wind up finding out is that the baby that was actually Corvius V drowned because it was swapped. Um, uh, so uh, with that, as far as uh, Yusuf, he was known as being extremely witty and cunning. He was skilled in stealth, magical mastery, defense against the dark arts, charms, transfiguration, divination, healing magic, nonverbal magic as well. Shows how amazing he is that he could do that. Apparition and bilingualism. Thesis was there. Uh, so Thesis Commander. So he was Newt's brother. He was born between February 25th, 1888 and February 23rd, 1889. He was the brother of Newt's commander and was regarded as a war hero. He was involved in World War I. Uh, he was head of war during the early days of the Global Wizarding War. He greatly contributed for his efforts in the apprehension of Gellert Grindelwald. Shows how good this guy is. He attended the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry and was sorted into the Hufflepuff house. So there you go, Hufflepuffs. Along with uh, Cedric, got another one there. He was known as an academically gifted student. He studied, studied Magi zoology just like Newt did his brother, but never thought of it as a career. He took five Newts and achieved all outstanding and ex exceeds expectation on the owls. Early in his career, he joined the British Ministry of Magic and walked into the Aurora office in the Department of Magical Law Enforcement. He worked as a dark wizard catcher during World War I, was his, was his big role there during World War I, and that's why he's regarded so highly as a, a war hero. He was one of the thousands that defied uh, Archer Evmund's emergency legislation that forbode the British wizarding community to get involved in hostilities. Thesis ordered Aurors to break up Grindelwald's rally. So he was basically at the same time, uh, he had scheduled all the Aurors there, Grindelwald's rally, working as a special agent to take him down. So all this is kind of going down at the same time. It's all going to collide into one. Cassius Bell was under Thesis as an Auror uh, at Grindelwald's rally. Uh, thesis gave the word to engage in combat with Grindelwald, so he ordered his Aurors to take him. Uh, Thesis joined Newt in a double spell that wound up deflecting, that was deflected by Grindelwald's fire, though. Uh, Letta interfered and stunned uh, Vinda Rosier. Grindelwald directed the fire to her flesh, and she sacrificed herself so that Theseus, Newt, and the rest of the group could apparate away and confess her love for Theseus. So, and Newt at the same time. It's actually wondered 
which one she was still talking to. And you're going to find out why in just a minute. But uh, it just shows what a badass Gellert Grindelwald was. He just, like, deflected that fire as the double spell came at him and just, like, moved it out of the way. Grindelwald disapparated but unleashed the deadly fire all throughout the mausoleum. Thesis, Newt, Tina, Yusuf, Nagini, Jacob Kalowski were close to death, but Nicholas Flamel arrived and instructed the Scamander brothers, uh, Perpentina and Kama, who is Tina Goldstein and Kama, to use general counterspells and curses. Um, Thesis listened uh, to his advice and stuck out his wand in the ground and helped defeat Grindelwald's fire as it was taking over the mausoleum. Horrified at the loss of his fiance, uh, he was just emotionally distraught and uh, Newt was torn up as well. After the battle, they wound up traveling with Newt to seek Albus Dumbledore and deliver him his pendant and seek his aid. Which that, as I'm sure a lot of y'all remember if you've seen the film, has at the end, you know, Albus um, takes out that blood pact, uh, which we'll talk about in a bit. Uh, Thesis is described as powerful, confident, and outgoing. He's respected among the International Confederation of Wizards. He's known for magical mastery, Aurora skills. He was a head Aurora, the head Aurora of the British Ministry of Magic. Uh, he's known for concealment and disguise, stealth and tracking, his training experience because he trained other Aurors, dueling, defense against the dark arts, charms, apparition, and his leadership skills. He was known to have unmatched willpower and perseverance, so he never give up, always did whatever he could to get to the top. Uh, Thesis wand, which is really cool, it has a tortoiseshell handle uh, to represent the elegance uh, for a man that would do rather well for himself with his future. His wand uh, core and length, though, are still unknown. Uh, he has strong relationships to Newt's commander and Letta Lestrange, uh, which Newt was his brother and Leto was his fiance. Uh, Torquil Travers, he actually work on, worked under at one point, and he was high up in the French Ministry of Magic, uh, and he had great connections to Albus Dumbledore. Uh, Credence Barebone, so here we go. He's definitely going to uh, find out a lot about him real quick. So Malice in the Chalice, baby, Malice in the Chalice. Good stuff. Let's dive in. Pool full liquor and you dive in. Oh, yeah. Big dirty. Big dirty. So, Credence Barebone. He was born in 1901. An American wizard. Credence Barebone nearly destroyed the woman who raised him. Uh, it's quoted here exactly. Credence Barebone nearly destroyed the woman who raised him. Yet now he seeks the mother who bore him. He's desperate for family. He's desperate for love. He's the key to our victory. Gellert Grindelwald. Gellert Grindelwald said that. He was adopted by Mary Lou Barebone, the leader of the Nomage anti-witchcraft group called New Salem uh, Philanthropic Society. And we'll talk about that later on in the show. Allegedly, Aurelius Dumbledore is what they think his identity was. And you'll find that out in a bit so just like albus um you know albus isn't the only one in the dumbledore family due to a repression of his magic credence developed an obscurus which we have talked about this before uh which is that dark parasitic force 
uh, it became an obscural. So it's basically this dark magic inside you that you can't control that burst out, almost like Scarlet Witch. Like I was watching, I saw the season finale of WandaVision. It was awesome, by the way. It was sick. So definitely go check that one out. But it was kind of the same way, like almost how Wanda just can't control, um, has trouble controlling things. He's the same way. The difference is obscurals that we've talked about before, they live, usually are only living to about 10 years old. So that's the difference here. And it's a testament that he lived so much longer because how incredible his power was uh, that he actually lived into adulthood. Credence was sought after by Gellert Grindelwald uh, because he wanted to manage his power and use him to turn him against Albus Dumbledore and kill him, which is a little bit ironic because uh, honestly, like it makes you think if Gellert was able to do this, maybe it could have happened. Like you, you never know. Um, so Credence headed to Grindelwald's heated Credence heated Grindelwald's call and actually joined his army. Um, it's quoted here, A son cruelly banished, despair of the daughter, return, great avenger with wings from the water, is a prophecy uh, and prediction by um, Tycho Dodonis. Uh, so that just, it says, In 1901, Credence was taken by Leda and Irma Dugard to a lifeboat. So remember we were talking about that story, Leda confessed right before she died and burned into flames. Baby Credence was put up for adoption in America, unbeknownst to anyone but Lita. After he was adopted, uh, which he was adopted by uh, Molly Barebone, or how do I pronounce her name? I want to make sure I pronounce her name right there. Uh, she is pronounced as um, Mary Lou Barebone. Sorry, not Molly. Uh, I'm terrible at names, you know that. So Mary Lou Barebone, and she was just known as being brutal. You thought the Dursleys was bad? Yeah, think again. So she would beat him frequently, not just cut him down, but actually physically beat him. Uh, so he was beaten after he was adopted. It's quoted as, Tina Goldstein said, his name is Credence. His mother beats him. She beats all these kids she adopted, but she seems to hate him most. Tina actually got in a confrontation with Mary Lou and stopped her on one occasion, which actually led to her getting fired. Uh, from Makusa, which we've talked about Makusa before, the Magical American Congress of the United States of America, uh, which is the American Ministry of Magic, and she wound up getting fired there from a point and wound up leaving. On October 21st, 1905, he was adopted by Mary Lou Barebone. She renamed him Credence Barebone, and she had three adopted children, Chastity and Modesty. Credence was the eldest of three. By December 1926, Credence was losing control of his Obscurus, so that power inside him. Outbursts of Credence Obscurus occurred, and these were known as the New York, uh, the New York Clarion and the New York Ghost. Um, so remember when we were talking about like that big event happened in New York where all the Muggles had to get obliterated, obliviated. Uh, it killed a lot of Aurors. It killed a lot of muggles as well. Um, that's all because Credence lost control of his Obscurus in New York uh, when Gellert Grindelwald was actually trying to find him, which led to Gellert Grindelwald's first apprehension. Gellert Grindelwald frequently came in contact with Credence and disguised himself as Percival Graves. We've talked about this just a little bit before. 
Grindelwald seduced Credence in tracking him down uh, an obscural that he had seen prior to a vision he received. So remember that skull bone? He saw the vision of Credence in that, and that's why he wanted to try to get his hands on him. He believed Credence was connected somehow. In exchange, Credence was promised to be made free of his obscural and be taught wizardry. After a failed attempt by the second uh, Salimers to garnish the support of Henry uh, Shaw Sr., Henry Shaw Sr., and being insulted by his own son, the senator, Credence Obscurus manifested later and attacked the fundraising event dinner at City Hall. So now he's attacking more people. It killed the senator as a result, and the act unwittingly exposed the wizarding world. Mary Lou attempted to beat Credence again. His obscure burst free and killed her and Chastity at the same time. Uh, still in the form of Percival Graves, Grindelwald arrived at the Second Salem Church, which is where Mary Lou lived, uh, where she had Chastity there as well. And actually, we're going to go into this a little bit deeper later. It was actually over a, a wand. It was a toy wand that Mary Lou was acting like was real, but basically, you know, almost like the Dursleys, like, you're not going to have anything to do with magic here. Like, that's not happening here. And she snapped the wand in half, and, you know, he was, uh, she was about to beat Credence, and that's when the Obscurus took effect and just obliviated everything in his path, uh, and she met her doom there, and we'll talk about that later on. Still in the form of Percival Graves, Grindelwald arrived at the Second Salem uh, Church, Salem, Massachusetts, and urged Credence to bring him modesty. He had fled the destruction to her old child, uh, childhood home, since Grindelwald believed her to have the power of foresight. Once there, Grindelwald told Credence he had no further use for him and dismissed him as a, as a, squib, as a squib. So once he got use of Credence... Like, he got what he needed. Um, and he, you know, once, like, he got what he needed from Credence, he just told him he was a scrub and said, get out of here. Like, I don't feel like dealing with you. Like, he, he didn't hold up any any bit of his bargain. Like, the whole point was just to really um, try to seek control of his Obscurus. Uh, due to the betrayal, Credence released his Obscure fully and rampaged through New York. So this is the one we were talking about where all the muggles were obliviated and all those aurors were killed and muggles were killed. This is in Fantastic Beasts at the very end there, uh, which leads to Gellert Grindelwald's apprehension. A quote says, We see Credence from within the black mask. This is aurors trying to attack Credence as they're headed to him. They actually believed Credence was dead after this. It exploded uh, so far out. We see Credence from within the black mass, his face contorted, screaming. The barrage of spells continues and Credence howls in pain. Under this pressure, the Obscurus finally seems to implode. A white ball of magical light taking over, the form of a black mass. All power subsides. Only small pieces of black matter are left, floating through the air like feathers. And that was the Aurora's on account of Credence uh, when he let loose his Obscurus and killed all those muggles and aurors, uh, and they believed him dead, and this was in New York. Newt's commander managed to calm down Credence during this time, though, is what actually happened, and this was occurring in a subway station. 
until he wound up engaging in combat with the Dark Wizard. Uh, Credence regained his obscural form. Tina Serafina Pickery, uh, we talked about her before a little bit, and Aurora's from Makusa proceeded to attack him with spells, only stopping when they believed he was destroyed. However, a single shred of his obscurus fled the scene, and it was unseen to anyone but Newt's commander. The attack resulted in Grindelwald's capture and believed destruction of Credence, so they thought he was dead. Ultimately, thousands of nomages were obliviated, so their memory was wiped in order to protect the wizarding the wizard's secrecy. This was all in Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, the first one. Credence survived because an Obscurial cannot be killed while in their obscure state. Credence returned to his human form and traveled to Circus Arcanus. So this is when we're starting to get in contact with Nagini. Circus Arcanus is a traveling wizarding circus owned by a cruel ringmaster, Skinder. Credence sailed to Europe and ended settling in, ended up settling in Paris during his time in Europe. During his time here, Credence became friends with Nagini, who is a maledictus that we described, and he gained a really close relationship with her. Six months after New York, so after the New York incident where the Obscurus exploded inside him, Gellert Grindelwald escaped during his transfer to Europe. Gellert Grindelwald journeyed to Paris to search for Credence in order to utilize his ability to kill Albus Dumbledore. Rumors surrounded regarding Credence's identity at this time used to set out to kill him, believing him to be Corvius Lestrange V. Credence and Nagini plotted their escape from Circus Arcanus, where both Kama and Tina Goldstein had located him. Credence managed their getaway by releasing several beasts and fleeing in ensuing chaos. Credence hid with Nagini at 18 Rue Philippi Laurent, followed by Gumar Grimmonson, the bounty hunter, which he's, he's pretty intense. Credence found half-elf Irma Dugard, which explains she didn't have as much magic and was really weak, whom he believed to be the mother of uh, a mother uh, to be his mother, whom he believed to be his mother because she adopted him at the time. Um, this is because her name was on his adoption papers, and she lived at 18 Rue Philippi Lauren. Uh, Dugard revealed she did not want to give up credence, but she was merely a servant of the Lestranges. Gumar Grimson. So he trapped Nagini for a brief moment on a wall in an attempt to kill her. So this is the bounty hunter uh, when he tried to take Credence, uh, Credence down. And Nagini and uh, Credence were both together. So he came over to Irma Dugard's house. Uh, trapped Nagini for a brief moment on a wall in an attempt to kill her. This was on Grindelwald's orders to keep Credence's identity a secret from him. Nagini and Credence hid in a house near the Eiffel Tower in Paris. Grindelwald tracked down Credence and offered him the chance to learn from his learn of his true parents. Credence accepted the offer, and Grindelwald gave Credence a map that led him to Pierre Lachasse Cemetery, which is the Lestrange Mausoleum where the rally occurred. Grindelwald, this is where his rally occurred. Um, during Grindelwald's rally, Credence and Nagini crossed paths again with Kama and Jacob Kalowski. Kama thinking Credence was Corvus, prepared to kill him, but they were joined by Newt's commander, Tina Goldstein, and Leda Lestrange. 
Cam's half sister, Lita, instead that Credence was not her half insisted that Credo was not her half brother. Credence was not her half brother, as the real Corvus Lestrange died and told the ship story. Lita recounted to her that her brother sailing to the recounted that her brother sailing to America on a ship and she wanted to relieve her screaming brother from being uh, from being scared on that ship uh, she swapped him with another baby on the ship and that baby was Credence the ship sank before Lita could switch the babies back and the real Corvus Lestrange drowned during Grindelwald's rally Grindelwald lit the blue flames and Credence uh, and, and Credence um entered credence actually followed grindelwald at this point so during grindelwald's rally grindelwald lit the blue flames that eventually turned black and credence entered the circle and joined him trusting that he had the knowledge of his true identity later grindelwald revealed to credence in nurmengard in austria that he had been caring for a baby phoenix According to the legend, a phoenix will appear to anyone of the Dumbledore family in dire need. Grindelwald then presented Credence with his birth wand and his birth name, Aurelius Dumbledore. So now we know he's part of the Dumbledore family. Grindelwald left Credence alone to ponder over his new life. Credence gestured with his wand, sending a ball of light crashing through a window and then into the mountainside, causing it to collapse. Credence was left in sheer awe in the discovery of the magical prowess. He is known, Credence is known as being troubled, mysterious, nervous, and ambitious. So for all this time, he doesn't even know who he is, much less now just being given a wand, being able to use it out of nowhere, and being able to harness that power, uh, which this is a really famous kind of iconic scene um, where he shoots it like out the window and it goes like a long ways past like mountains if you ever watch the movie but um, it, it's really is amazing that he can just use any wand given to him too so he's known as his obscurest transformation skills um, which is really amazing on its own that he was even able to harness that and live past 10 magical aptitude uh, he survived past the age of 10 Wand versatility, like I said, could use any wand because Gellert Grindelwald just handed him that wand and said, this is your rightful wand, Aurelius, uh, Aurelius Dumbledore. And um, it was gifted to him by Grindelwald without the wand having to choose him. And his ability of apparition is phenomenal. So now we've talked about, right, let's think. Bellatrix Lestrange, probably one of the most powerful witches out there, dark witches out there. Now we're talking about the third most powerful wizard out there, um, Gellert Grindelwald. And now you have a guy, probably could be, uh, and this is Dark Wizard, I mean, the third most powerful Dark Wizard. Now you can probably argue the fourth most powerful Dark Wizard. Now you got is Credence, because this is like the fact that he has an obscure, obscurus, it's like a ticking time bomb. Like you, and you know he doesn't trust anybody it's almost like we always talk about the departed on this show because it's funny it's like uh you know uh, jack nicholson jack nicholas says in that movie or jack nicholson says in that movie sorry not the golfer <laughs> jack uh jack says in that movie you can't trust a guy that has nothing to lose and that's like credence here it really is and uh so you could almost argue that he is the fourth 
most powerful dark wizard of all time. So Nagini, so kind of going into her story here. Malice in the Chalice. Malice in the Chalice. Yeah. Malice in the Chalice. Wheezy, uh, yeah, back home smoking legal. We get more slaps than the Beatles, dog. <laughs> yeah. Um, Don Corleone, yeah. Um, anyway, so Nagini, right? So... This is where it really gets a lot of people's attention because uh, for the longest time, even myself, like when I was a kid reading Harry Potter, I just always thought, you know, Nagini was a snake. Uh, but you kind of do have this sense like there's definitely more to her. Like, why has Voldemort found such an interest in her? And um, yeah, and, and she has a very uh, interesting, deep background. So like I said, she was a maledictus. Uh, born in 1927 in Indonesia, a human maledictus. A maledictus is a female individual who carried a blood curse that eventually turned her into a beast permanently. The curse was carried from birth and passed from mother to daughter. The beast can transform and the transformation can vary based on the curse. Before their permanent transformation, they had the ability to change shape at will, which gradually became uncontrollable. Maledictuses were not destined to become evil and were very different from werewolves and animagi. A lot of people actually say they're in between werewolves and animagi because werewolves can't control at all when they change. It's all based on the moon. Animagi can control exactly when they change. The difference is Nagini or the maledictuses um, which there's also, uh, there's a number of different things that are argued for who are also maledictuses. Like Miss Norris, some people argue that she's a maledictus. I don't believe that. I think she was just a cat. Because <laughs> they say she's got too, you know, she's got too many emotions with Filch and she's very intelligent. Well, she got petrified. I don't think she's a maledictus. But anyways, the whole idea is, you know, they can choose when they want to transform until this blood curse become so out of control that they're eventually forced to transform permanently into that beast uh, when they can't control that. So it's kind of in between there. Uh, but Nagini was a performer at the Circus Arcanus where she met Credence, uh, Credence Barebone, and they had, and had the ability to transform at will during this time. Nagini, a female counterpart for a class or entity or being that takes the form of a very large snake, Indian religions, this is very interesting too. This proves the point that this was always the plan. Not that they just randomly came up with this after um, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, because I can see how people would say that, because I almost thought that to myself for a moment. You know, maybe like they're just doing this as a cash drop. They just wanted something to capitalize, to be relatable um, over to these characters so we can relate to it, right? Well, that's not the case. So one... Uh, J.K. Rowling actually tweeted out that she's been keeping this a secret for 20 years. We weren't even sure how true that was, but listen to this. So the answer has actually been in front of you this entire time, and a lot of people don't even know that. So Nagini, right, just the name alone, listen to this. So Nagini, a female counterpart for a class or entity or being that takes the form of a very large snake. In Indian religions is sometimes seen with a partly human female form. So this is exactly what the name says. Literally, right here. I'm going to reread it for you. 
in Indonesian de definition here, Nagini, a female counterpart for a class or entity or being that takes the form takes the form of a very large snake in Indian religions, sometimes seen with a partly human, partly human female form. So that proves it right there. Um, and the curse is not a werewolf or animagus, but something right in between is what they've always described it as. Um, so uh, it is believed that she actually uh, was in about her early 20s here when she meets Credence. Um, it is thought that she was approximately 90 at the Battle of Hogwarts, which we talk about in Deathly Hallows, so all the way towards the end there. So you can see how, you know, how her lifespan was here. Like she, you know, she actually lived a really long life. Grindelwald, so Grindelwald fell from power in 1945, so after him. So this is going to kind of connect to answer some of your questions. So it is thought, and these are theories, so nothing's been exactly proven, but this is, this is the strongest theory and thought out there, I believe. So Tom Riddle began to meet with Dumbledore during the time after Grindelwald fell from power in 1945. We're going to talk about this a good bit in Half-Blood Prince coming up in a few weeks. So, but, so we're not going to get too into it, but this will explain a lot of the points. So Dumbledore during this time uh, uh, was listening to Tom Riddle and meeting with him in those meetings, and Tom Riddle told Dumbledore that he could speak to snakes. It is believed it was around this time that Voldemort actually met Nagini for the first time, and it took two times before they actually really kept connecting and she took his side. But it is believed this is around the first this was the first time uh, around this time when Voldemort met Nagini. And he was because he could speak to snakes and uh, she could, you know, he could speak apostle tongue and talk with her. So it's thought Nagini at this time had already um, already been overtaken by her maledictus curse and was a full uh, snake at this point and couldn't transform back. So by 1945, it is thought that Tom Riddle encountered Nagini in a cave with Dennis Bishop and Amy Benson on a field trip. Uh, it's even described that uh, we're not going to go in too much on this because it discusses a lot of Tom Riddle's past in uh, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. But it said it scared him beyond belief to the point they never spoke a word of it. And it never says what he saw in the cave. But this is the theory that this is where he actually meets Nagini for the first time. It is thought that later in the forests of Albania, so this is after Voldemort fell from power, after the first Wizarding War. And remember, he was so, uh, due to Lily and that rebound effect, uh, because um, that, that curse that rebounded when he was hit with it, and he was basically on the edge of death at that point when he was drinking the unicorn blood, this is when he winds up running into Nagini for a second time in the forests of Albania. Um, after he was defeated after the first Wizarding War and living off unicorn blood. Um, and then Tom is thought that saw her as a benefit for his cause for the two to join forces. Um, and at the time that Nagini decided to side with him because she was super lonely at the time. It says, 
uh, people often even ask, right, if um, d really like why. So the, the reason why I would say is because keep in mind, she really couldn't uh, conversate with anybody because she was a full blown um, snake, you know, in, in apostle tongue is a Salazar Slytherin air trait, and there's very few of them. Uh, so Voldemort really at this time was one of the very few. Uh, so it's thought she just sided with him because, you know, he could really cater to her sense of emotions and really kind of like, you know, you help me, I help you kind of thing. We can both help each other out. Here's a theory. So people often ask, and I'm going to put this one to bed. So people often ask if Nagini was the snake that was in you know, in America, we have the Sorcerer's Stone. In England, it was originally written as, or the United Kingdom, it was originally written as the Philosopher's Stone. So people often ask if Nagini was the snake Harry set free in the zoo in the Sorcerer's Stone. The answer is no, they're not. Sorry. Sorry, I put that one to bed. That'd be cool, but no. Uh, the reason why there's too many differences, and I'll tell you right now. So the snake that was in the Sorcerer's Stone, one is from Brazil, and we've talked about this on the show, on our show before. Uh, Harry even asks the snake, where are you from? And the snake responds, Brazil. Harry wound up, just to paraphrase this a little bit, Harry winds up reading next to the glass, remember, that it says specimen bred in the zoo. So like it couldn't be Nagini because Nagini was never bred in the zoo. And he said, oh, I see, you've never been to Brazil. Uh, the snake in the Sorcerer's Stone is actually a boa constrictor as well. That's in that glass, if you all remember not a viper. Nagini is like a viper type snake. So they don't exactly call her a viper, but that's more what she is because also boa constrictors don't bite people and they're not venomous. They constrict their prey. And also Nagini's from Indonesia, not Brazil where the boa constrictor wanted to come from. Um, uh, Nagini has actually, like we've noticed, has bit multiple people and poisoned them throughout the books and films, whereas, uh, you know, boa constrictors don't do that. Uh, book one actually describes the snake as long enough to wrap itself, and this is the Sorcerer's Stone boa constrictor, describes the snake as large enough to wrap itself around Uncle Vernon's car and crash it into a trash can. Whereas Nagini is described only to be 12 feet long. So that's another difference right there. Also, the film adaptations clearly show Nagini in The Crimes of Grindelwald and Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone as a woman, whereas the boa constrictor in the film, you can't see this in the book because you read the book, but in the film, it's a male voice that says, thanks. But uh, so it's just very different. It, it, I'm sorry, I'm putting that one to bed right now. And then as he's leaving in the book, just to aid that, he says, I'm going to Brazil, <laughs> which like, why would Nagini ever need to go to Brazil? That makes no sense. She's not even from there. So, um, so yeah, that puts that to bed now. Actually, the two are completely different. Uh, take a shot, <laughs> entirely different. So Lita Lestrange, so going into her a little bit, right? And we've talked a good bit about her so far. She was born uh, September 1890, uh, 1896, and it's thought she died in the, uh, sorry. Um, so she was born in September, um, either 1896 or 1897. 
So not exactly sure what year uh, that was, either 1896 or 1897. And then she died in a Lestrange manner, uh, manner in that April, uh, they think about 20-something years later. So there's not exactly... Um, not exactly a, a note on that. Um, so let's see. Yeah. So, but she was a pure blood uh, witch. She was a pure blood witch from Britain. Uh, she brought about the death of infant Corvus Lestrange. She attended a Hogwarts school of witchcraft and wizardry between 1908 and 1915. She was sorted into the Slytherin house. She was often a victim of bullying. She actually developed a close relationship with Newt Scamander while uh, she was at Hogwarts, um, but wound up parting ways with him later uh, because she was known for causing trouble with a Jarvie, which a Jarvie, uh, remember we talked about that multiple times on the show. Remember Jarvies? that's how Gilderoy Lockhart claimed you should denome your garden is with their uh, not so nice ways of like biting them out. They almost look like a, a ferret almost. Um, Newt wound up actually taking the blame for Lita, though. Uh, and what happened was um, Newt actually wound up getting expelled uh, because of this. So uh, because the Jarvie wound up threatening the life of a student. Uh, she became a member of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement, and she became the fiancé of Newt's older brother in 1927. Newt's commander, though, always really was in love with her, really. Uh, so kind of always in the friend zone, <laughs> but always in love with her. Uh, Newt's commander uh, actually has even said that he carried a photograph of her uh, in his magically expanded suitcases over all the years. Uh, by 1927, Leda fell in love with Newt's older brother, Thesis commander. They were intending to marry by June 6, 1928. Newt was invited to be the best man. So imagine that. Wow. You get to be the best man and a girl you've loved your whole life and get to see her taken away. Oh, wow. Real nice. Real nice. Loosen up my buttons, baby. But you keep frauding now. Slay fest. That's what I call it. You get to watch her get slayed. Anyways, so Leda encountered Newton, Tina Goldstein in the records room while they searched for the Lestrange family box. So this goes back into the records room, remember? Uh, Leda comes across both of them. Newt advised Leda to not fight the Matagots, because remember, those were the security that was coming to get them because they were caught in there trying to get the Lestrange family box, whereas, um, you know, it had already been uh, removed at that point. Newt advised Leda uh, to not fight uh, the Matagots, and Newt hid Leda and Tina in the suitcase. Newt, Tina, and Leda headed to the Lestrange family tomb in pursuit of Grindelwald. Newt and Thesis were attacked at Grindelwald's rally. Leda confessed to accidentally killing Corbius. Leda to cause a distraction, so Newt, Tina, Jacob, Yusuf, Nagini had time to escape. Leda casted a spell and destroyed Grindelwald's skull hookah. So remember the one he was shooting the visions out of that he could see and so that everyone else could see in the room like what their plans are and what the visions he had were? She casted a spell to give them time to escape, to cause a distraction, and Grindelwald's skull hookah exploded, knocking down Vinda Rosier, that was already there, uh, before incarcerated in the flames. 
and uh, she looked at both the Scamander brothers and said, I love you. And it still wondered which one she was talking about today, whether she was talking about Newt and he was still in the friend zone or if she was talking about Thesis. Um, there's strong belief she actually was talking about Newt. If she was, it was very secretive, I would say. Um, and, I mean, this is the only time she ever even showed signs of it. So I claim more... She's probably leaning more towards Theseus, but it's still not uh, not known. Uh, sh but Leda was engulfed by the flames, and it is still unclear um, which one she was referring to. And you can see this in Crimes Against Grindelwald. Abilities and appearance. Uh, she is described as beautiful, had intense brown eyes with dark colored hair. She was known to use the dark charm Oscas. Uh, which uh, she actually used this uh, when she was being bullied at Hogwarts. Uh, sorry, it's Oscusi. Oscasi is how you say it. O-S-C-A-U-S-I. So, you know I'm terrible names. Y'all can look that up. Oscasi. So the Oscasi charm, she used it when she was being bullied at Hogwarts. Uh, but it's a dark charm used to seal uh, someone's mouth shut <laughs> where the victim's mouth would appear as if it was never there, like there was skin covering the mouth. The victim will be muted as a consequence. Her skills were magical mastery and charms, uh, defense against the dark arts, apparition. She was known for apparition. Uh, she was known to have great willpower, of course. Uh, so Irma, Irma Dugard, remember she uh, was known to be Credence's adopted mother. So she was a half-elf born in 1901 and died in early September 1927 in 18 Rue Philippe Lorland, Paris, France. She worked as a housekeeper for the Lestrange family and she took care of Credence Beerbone. Half-elves and half-goblins, by the way, um, it's actually thought that... So there's really not very many accounts of them as far as like actual people. The only one that's even accounted for... It was thought that Phileas Flitwick was often thought to be either a half-goblin or a half-elf, but no one ever actually asked him this because they felt so bad, but because of his size and his appearance. So it really makes you wonder. So yeah, it's thought Phileas Flitwick was either a half-elf or a half-goblin. Um, Porpentina Goldstein, also known as Tina Goldstein. So a little bit about her background here. So she was born August 19, 1901. She was a half-blood born in the United States of America. She attended the Olivermoney School, which we talked about a couple episodes ago. Olivermoney School, Witchcraft and Wizardry, and was sorted into the Thunderbird House. She graduated and became an Aurora for Makusa, a magical congress of the United States of America. Tina was dismissed from her position of, at Makusa, for assaulting Mary Lou Barebone when she attempted to beat Credence, um, where she uh, stepped in on this and took charge. And uh, so uh, remember, this is what I was talking about a little bit earlier. Uh, she got in that altercation with her. Uh, Goldstein was investigating. The reason this happened was because she was investigating New Salem Philanthrope, which was the organization that Mary Lou Barebone headed and was the lead of, uh, and this was the New Salem Philanthropic Society against the Order of Superiors. So you can see this definitely doesn't seem like a society that's really going in the right direction or following the rules or um, 
really doing what is right, I would say. Uh, but she was reinstated in 1926 after aiding to the arrest of Gellert Grindelwald. Uh, she became the wife of famed Magi zoologist Newt Scamander. So this is Newt's wife. Uh, she retired from the Department of Aurors and moved to the United Kingdom with Newt. Newt and Tina are thought to have one child, Rolf Scamander, and two great-grandsons, Lorcan and Lysander Scamander. She lost her mother and father at a very young age due to dragonpox. Her family and friends called her Tina. However, her sister, Queenie Goldstein, always referred to her as Teeny because of her size. <laughs> Pretty funny. So, think back to the film. This is uh, an interesting theory that I... I heard because it actually raises a lot of questions if you watch it doesn't mention it in the book but if you watch Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban uh, the film so if you watch the film adaptation so Newt Scamander is actually on the Marauders map a lot of people don't know that if you zoom on it I'll try to put this on the website um, but if you watch our website www.ridiculouspatronus.blogspot.com you go there and probably see it I'm gonna try to put it there but if you zoom in, Newt's commander is actually on the Marauder's map when Harry's using it. Uh, so it's referring to the part, remember, in the book where, you know, he's using the Marauder's map and trips and everything kind of goes everywhere. Uh, and Lupin grabs the map uh, and keeps it from Snape, right? Um, in the film, um, he is, like, going down that hall when he sees, like, Peter Pettigrew, um, like, his, his steps on the map. Well, if you scroll over to like the right side, Newt Scamander's name's on it. So there's interesting theories on that. So uh, there's a few theories. So one is because at the time when this was happening, remember Buckbeak was on trial. Um, and because Newt was so involved in the care for magical creatures, it is thought that Hagrid or Albus actually called him to try to seek... Um, see you know basically counsel on it to see what the best option was uh so one thought is newt was actually there meeting with albus at the time which is why his name was on the map uh to save buckbeak two is uh he actually remember i told you his grandsons lorkin and lysander scamander he did have two grandsons and they did go to hogwarts actually so about this time, Lorcan and Lysander would wind up being at Hogwarts. So it's thought he could be there visiting his grandsons. I find that really hard to believe. The other one is plausible, but I find that kind of hard to believe too. Um, but a lot of people don't know that ghosts actually do show up on the Marauders map uh, sometimes. So uh, the thought is Newt uh, could have just very well been a ghost there. And he had some lingering effect and wanted to see some of his old um, some of his old work see it through there uh, so because uh, you know Newt um, spent a lot of time there studying for magical creatures and he just wanted to see some of his work fulfilled so he was actually a ghost at the time so just interesting stuff um, so Mary Lou Barebone so here's going into that society um, so she is messed up. She is a messed up individual. So she was born in December 7, 1926 uh, on Pike Street, New York, New York. She was born in the Barebone family and descended from Scores. So Scores, what those are, so uh, it they basically were kind of like, they 
were basically like mercenaries that were here before any sort of governance. And when I say here, I'm in the United States, so uh, the United States of America. So it's basically like mercenaries that were just running rampant uh, before any sort of governance was in place. So scores are a band of rogue wizarding mercenaries who operated in what became the United States of America before it was formed. They were formed due to the lack of any wizarding governance. Vigilante groups that started bouncing hunting as a service to people. They became increasingly corrupt and brutal and engaged in torture and murder. Eventually, they became involved in wizarding traffic and were turning over innocent no-badges over to witches that were hunting Puritans in exchange for gold, which goes into a lot of the Salem witch trial stuff. Some sorcerers managed to evade being brought to justice by marrying nomadges, which remember, nomadges are non-muggle, muggle, or sorry, non-magic people. Nomadges are non-magic people of the United States. We've talked about that before. Um, in integrating into nomad society. So some sorcerers managed to evade being brought to justice by marrying nomadges and integrating into nomad society. It is said that two of the judges that presided over the Salem witch trials were scoriers seeking personal vendettas against witches. They largely discouraged purebloods from coming to America. So it was basically these non-magic people that were running rampant and encouraging violent acts, uh, even hiring bounding hunters to assassinate magic people, um, and were putting them on trial, which was, you know, a lot of the cause for the witch trials. Um, and how they claimed they were so um, so biased and, uh, you know, it was just, just wrong what they were doing with all the acts of violence. In 1693, so Mikusa, Magical Congress of the United States of America, was established uh, after, these, after that was kind of happening with the witch trials um, and slowly put an end to scoriers. But now what you're kind of seeing here is Mary Lou Barebone was starting the society to start that whole axe back up again and get them riled up to basically start a revolt against the magic people in the United States. Several Scorier families remain to exist despite this. Uh, they contain to have they contain to have a deep hatred for magic. In the 18th century, Bartholomew. Barebone, so Mary Lou's ancestor, revealed information about scoriers to the witch Decorus uh, Twelve Trees. Bartholomew Barebone, so her ancestor, stole uh, Decorus Twelve Trees' wand, and it was revealed to be one of the biggest breaches of international statue of wizard secrecy ever. It led to the passage of Rapport's Law, which we've talked about before, um, which aided the part of, remember, where Emily Rapport, who was the president uh, for Makusa at the time, um, and she actually had a lot of um, um, muggle ties, actually asked for help from the British Ministry of Magic to help out in the American Revolution, and they wouldn't do it because they don't get caught up in muggle affairs. Well, this also added to that 
as far as being a breach of international statute of wizard secrecy. So this was kind of like the icing on the cake. So they decided to keep them separated and went, want nothing to do with each other nowadays. Um, and it also led to an article in December 6, 1926, which was the morning edition of the New York Ghost, about Scorier descendants in Salem, Massachusetts, facing a magical identity crisis, and they were achieving blight freedom from magical shackles. Uh, so the New York Ghost is like the Daily Prophet, but in, uh, but in America. Uh, Rapport's Law, once again, just a reminder that it was American Wizarding Law enacted by President Emily Rapport, in 1790 spoke of her uh, where the law was to create segregation between nomads and wizarding communities. Nomads being non-magic people. The chorus Twelve Trees, he lived in the 18th century. Uh, he was the daughter of Aristotle Twelve Trees. He attended the Livermoney School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, but did not do well academically, and he did not pursue a career in the magical field afterwards. Uh, Aristotle Twelve Trees uh, so this is his father. He was the keeper of treasure of Adragots during Emily Rappaport's presidency. So he was basically the uh, treasurer, as in the words we would say, for the United States, uh, uh, for our governance here. He was basically the treasurer for all of Makusa, so the magical Congress of the United States. Um, he is described as a competent man. He was a keeper uh, he had the keeper position of Makusa, which is basically the equivalent to a treasury in American Muggles government. He was responsible for creating economic policies and managing government budget. Uh, it's quoted that as time went on, the Scoriers became increasingly corrupt. Far away from the jurisdiction of their magical governments, many indulged in love authority and cruelly unjustified by their mission. Such scoriers enjoyed bloodshed and tortured, and event was so far trapped and and participated in the event that went as far as trafficking their fellow wizards. So they literally were engaging in trafficking of wizards, and that was uh, that's a quote from there. It says America remained one of the most hostile environments for magical people, mainly because of scorier descendants who had vanished permanently into the nomad community and who kept suspicion of magic alive. Uh, so, and then the Scoriers had a great impact on uh, wizarding American society with that segregation law that was put there between nomad and magical people, um, which aided the fact of why, you know, Britain also didn't want to get involved. So basically it's very, you know, between magic and non-magical people, it's a very hostile environment. Uh, for the United States still to this day. Uh, so Mary Lou Barebone, she became the leader of New Salem Philanthropic Society, which involved basically the revamp of these scores. These scores. Uh, American Nomad Anti-Witchcraft Group. Uh, it was located in New York, uh, is what this was. She adopted uh, uh, ch uh, chastity, credence, and modesty. Uh, she was in, um, in December 1926, she was assaulted by Porpentina Sotina Goldstein for the abuse of credence, which eventually led to Porpentina's dismissal from Makusa. Uh, she would give speeches to audiences to join the second uh, Salamars, 
in the fight against wizard kind and she was eventually killed by credence's obscurus credence found a seemingly real wand so it was a toy wand under her daughter modesty's so this is his sister adopted sister modesty bed mary lou had credence remove his belt so she could beat him with it mary lou's daughter confessed the wand was hers but mary lou still assumed it was credence's the belt suddenly flew out of mary lou's hand injuring it as she went to pick it back up it magically flew away as she turned towards modesty and credence she was attacked by credence's obscurus she was flying against the rafters at the chapel the church that they were located in uh, which is where they lived and fell dead with formidable marks covering her face it's quoted as she moves an almighty force explodes into her a pestile screeching dark mask that consumes her her scream is blood curdling as the force throws her backwards striking a wood beam flinging her onto the balcony mary lou smashes down onto the floor of the main church her body lifeless her face bearing the same scars seen on her face of senator shaw which senator shaw remember credence killed as an obscurus when he was an obscurus uh, new salem philanthropic society it's also known as second salemers uh, is the fanatical nomad group sought to destroy wizard kind meetings were at the church in pike street new york new york where of course mary lou uh, modesty and uh chastity uh, the sister the other sister and credence lived um uh, where they ran a soup kitchen for poor <laughs> poor children and disputed anti-witchcraft pamphlets so uh at that church where they lived they were running soup kitchens for people and distributing anti-witchcraft pamphlets uh, Gumar Grimson, he was born in 1927. He's that bounty hunter, remember, that shoved uh, Nagini up against a wall. So his wand was unknown length and core. He was hired to kill Irma Dugard and deprive credence to answers to push him into Grindelwald's arms. He worked for the British Minister of Magic. Uh, he was known as male, violent, and sinister. He was loyal to Gellert Grindelwald and vocally disliked Newt's commander. He was vicious beast hunter. Uh, he was cold-blooded merciless when he killed. Um, and he killed Irma Dugard, so Credence's adopted mother with the killing curse. He was hired personally by Gellert Grindelwald uh, while he was working for the British Ministry of Magic. He was skilled as a bounty hunter, tracking and stealth, charms, dark arts, and apparition. Uh, 18 roof uh, Philippi Laurent. If you haven't figured that out now, that's just located in Paris, France. It's the street address of Irma Dugard, where she lived, which was Credence's adopted mother. Circus Arcanus. A little bit more about that. So, it's a traveling wizard circus and freak show owned by Skindor that boasted that worlds must compete, complete Congress of Human Oddities. It consisted of daily a daily street parade which organizers promised was worth coming miles around to see and would amuse both the young and old. It visited New York two weeks in 1926 and started in November 29th and ended with a show at 8 p.m. on December 15th. 
Two parades were held Friday, December 3rd, and at 3.15 and 8 p.m. Uh, two, so two parades were held Friday, December 3rd at 3.15 p.m. and 8 p.m. It was slated to travel to Europe after New York. The Circus Arcanus is performed in Paris, Rue Claudel, and Rue um, Garden. Uh, during the 2020s, the part of the circus performers appeared as foundables during the Calamity, which we've talked about the Calamity uh, before on uh, this show and in interesting facts. Remember that was when all those artifacts went missing and they had to get them back. Uh, they sent out the Aurors to get those back. Um, but uh, so during the 2020s, part of the circus performers appeared as foundables during the Calamity. Um, and it was volunteer members of the Statue of Secrecy Task Force were able to free them and return them back to their uh, their original time, which you can see that in Hogwarts uh, Mystery, I'm pretty sure that's in, um, or the, the game. That's on the um, one that came on the phone years ago, but a couple years ago, years ago. But it is thought workers were held against their will at Circus Arcanus. It's quoted... I'd much rather be one of the circus non-beast performers. At least that fellow could get out of the stretch of his legs among the crowd. And this is Constance, uh, Constance, Constance speaking here. And then it says, I'm not so sure about that, Constance. From what I've learned, some of the performance may, performers may have been there against their will. And that's uh, Constance Pickering talking to Harry Potter about that. Um, and this was much later when Harry Potter worked at the ministry, but that was actually a quote from him. Uh, but Skinder, you know, the corrupt ringleader that was running the show here. So he was born in 1927. He was a European wizard and ringmaster of Circus Arcanus. He was the cruel and ex-owner. Uh, uh, he was the cruel and expolitive. Uh, so, you know, he was the cruel and owner of Circus Arcanus. He was attacked by Nagini after forcing her to perform in front of a live audience announcing her snake transformation. This gave time for Credence Barebone to cause a distraction, so Nagini, Credence, and Zowu, remember we said we talked about him, that big lion animal, uh, could escape the circus. After Zowu, Nagini, and Credence escaped, the circus was engulfed in fire. This was caused by the release of several caged fire drakes. Skinder panicked. Uh, shrunk his entire circus and put it in his suitcase after being questioned shortly after by Tina Goldstein and fled to Paris with his magic circus house elf. Uh, Skinder appeared as a foundable during the Calamity. Uh, so that's that game you can get. Uh, volunteer members of the Statue of Secrecy Task Force were able to free him and return him to his original time. A uh, foundable, just a reminder on that for you, it's a term used by the Ministry of Magic to refer to things and even memories displaced all over the Muggle uh, world during the Calamity. So that was that event that they made for uh, the Hog uh, Harry Potter game that came out on the phone a couple years ago. Foundables were stuck in place by a piece of magic called a co-foundable, and thus it was exposing the wizarding world and in potential breach of international statue of wizard secrecy. Um, we talked about that in Sorcerer's Stone, interesting facts. Uh, Co-foundable, once again, uh, so they actually even say they don't have a word for it, really, but it's a term referred to a chaotic um, 
to chaotic magic that as a result of the calamity stuck displaced wizards and witches magical objects and artifacts magical creatures or even memories somewhere a very public in areas inhabited by muggles um so remember we were talking about uh, where we exactly talked about this was when we had the episode on uh the mirror of Eraset, uh and they had that issue because the mirror of Eraset was also uh, a result of the calamity as well which was that game that came out on the phone where they had to get those objects back constance pickering uh she said harry can you explain co-foundables what are they harry said we don't really know uh they seem to be the result of a defensive spell of some sort they are clearly to protect foundables from what i'm not sure and that was harry when he was working in the ministry uh and then uh this can all be seen uh and this was the mystery of co-foundables which can all be seen in uh, that harry potter game but boris the brute he was in the circus as well uh so he was known as a traveling freak and they billed him as a paraphetus and warned people to take heed at his awful deception a paraphetus just means he could um he was deceitful and untrustworthy but he was known to have been performing he could perform hypnosis on people if they looked him directly in the face which is why they all assumed he had crazy you know awful deceitfulness and deception and could basically um conjure you into doing things you didn't want to do and basically could almost like not possess you but um convince you to do something you didn't want to do uh the infant demonic so he was in this so he was a deformed person that they claimed was part demon because of his deformities and advertised him on posters with horns a tail and claw-like hands and feet so the snake girl we know was nagini that's what they referred to her as oni uh so he was described as a mortal japanese demon uh, he was featured in the Calamity, actually, when they had that game come out. Volunteer members from the Statue of Secrecy Task Force were able to return him to his original time. He is depicted as a horned humanoid with red and blue skin. Uh, and actually, um, Onis are actually mentioned in Japanese folklore. So a little bit about that. Uh, Nigel uh, Le Narkisic. Uh, so Nigel Le Narkisic, I guess is how you say it. Um, but he was build as bona fide uh, she is a member of the homo amphibia species uh, so she is part human part amphibian uh, she would drown um, she would devour her own tail while singing greek folk songs so that's interesting so part human part amphibian is nigel le narcissic and she would eat her own tail as she was performing in front of people part human part amphibian uh kappa so we talked about kappa a little bit so native to japan uh feeds on human blood uh watered filled uh filled like the hollow head we talked about kappas before in the harry potter books um and uh, it's a japanese water demon uh, it's mentioned in prisoner of azkaban remember lupin was talking about them a little bit they feed on the blood of humans and strangle anyone unlucky enough to wade into their ponds or rivers. And this was featured in the Circus Arcana. Kappas were captured by humans by because the humans, what they would do to capture these Kappas 
would throw cucumbers inscribed with the person's name. They would trick it into bowing, and when it bowed, it would spill the water that was actually on the top of its head, weakening it, because it had a hollow head that was filled with water that would actually help it. That's where it would get its power from. So it had this hollow head, almost like a bull somewhat, but it would be filled with water, but then when they would have it bow down to pick up the cucumber, it would spill the water out and it would lose uh, it was lose its power. So they were really hunted, actually. Um, but they looked like uh, scale-covered monkeys with webbed hands and water-filled depression atop its head. The water in its hollow head was the source of the beast's strength. They are known to live in Japan. They have been heard uh, to be found in Mongolia, as well as according to Professor Snape. Uh, a bear, a bar uh, is another uh, creature that was at the circus. It's a hairy humanoid with backwards feet. It's said to live with wild animals in India. It's supposed savagery made it extremely difficult to capture. Uh, and then Zowu, we've talked about him a good bit. So uh, he's related to the cat. He's the size of an elephant, native to China. A striped body, four fangs, long tail, and incredibly powerful and fast. He has five colors on its body and a gigantic elephant-sized cat. So massive-sized cat. It was a monstrously large feline-like beast with a striped body, scraggly mane, four fangs that curled out its mouth. Long, sharp claws and disproportionately long, ruffled, multicolored tail. Incredibly powerful and fast capable of traveling a thousand miles in a day so fantastic beast if you've seen like fantastic beast or uh crimes against grindelwald um this is that thing that it looks like one of those like almost like a dragon in a um in a chinese parade you know the parade how they have those big floats of dragons looks like that with the tusks that come out uh like those big lions so that big famous scene with that lion going everywhere that's what that is at Zowu. Um, Skinder captured a female one which is this one Zowu and uh, well it was a Zowu is the creature but um, Skinder captured a female one and it had scars from abuse. In September 1927 Newt's commander encountered it when it escaped and buried it in his suit and buried it in his suitcase. Newt created a habitat in his suitcase and healed its scars. Uh, New unleashed Zowu uh, in the form uh, out of his suitcase. Uh, so New unleashed Zowu from his suitcase when him, Tina Goldstein, and Lita Lestrange were cornered by Madagots in the French Ministry of Magic. Remember, we were talking about that. That's how they got away from that security. In 2020, Zowu actually appeared as a foundable in the Calamity. Volunteer members of the Statue of Secrecy Task Force were able to free her and return her to the, her original time. There was a two-headed boy that was featured in Circus Arcana. Uh, he was born before 1927. The name was given uh, to a set of Is, uh, Ischigopagus uh, twins, which that just means um, a medical term for conjoined twins. Uh, part of the show... Uh, and they were featured in part of the show when it visited the United States in November and December of 1926. 
Um, and then Credence Barebone, of course, was a member of the circus, actually. Uh, fire Drakes for you. So Fire Drakes were lizards capable of flight. Uh, they shoot sparks from their tail. They're sometimes mistaken for dragons, but the difference is they do not spit fire from their mouth. It just comes from their tail. So Grindelwald's Rally. Remember I told you we would full circle back around to this. So the ones at Grindelwald's Rally that we didn't speak about before were Abernathy, Kraft, McDuff, and Nagel. So Abernathy. He was a 1920s American wizard. He was employed for Makusa, so magical... Uh, American Congress of the United uh, Magical uh, Administration Congress of the United States of America eventual follower of Gellert Grindelwald he served as a superior for Tina Goldstein in 1926 he worked in the wand permit office and was responsible um, to find uh, whereabouts for people he assisted with the escape of Gellert Grindelwald in 1927 temporarily switching appearances with the dark wizard uh, with using human transfiguration and boarding the incarceration carriage uh the carriage grindelwald was imprisoned in um so remember this is that famous scene right at the beginning of the crimes against grindelwald uh where he's being transported over to europe uh johnny depp is as grindelwald and then he winds up escaping uh they basically form this heist in the middle of it so he can escape and uh, it was with uh, Rudolf Spielman, who was actually uh, the carriage driver that was originally there, uh, that Abernathy switched places with him and took over the carriage uh, and drove Grindelwald uh, to freedom. So what happened was Rudolf Spielman, uh, so uh, he apparated onto the, so Abernathy apparated onto the carriage, killed the Aurors, and sent Rudolf Spearman flying down from the carriage. He did survive, though, uh, because Abernathy hit him with a slowing charm uh, that was conjured, and it gave Grindel, but then gave Grindelwald a blood-packed vial, and the two flew away to Europe. So remember, we were talking about that blood-packed vial, um, which we can talk about that later once we get more to Hollows and that sort of thing. Uh, Deathly Hollows. Abernathy took part in murdering the non-magic family that we spoke about earlier, so... Uh, that has their infant there, their infant son, uh, so that they could use the unoccupied apartment as a safe haven for Grindelwald. Abernathy took the appearance of an elderly witch and aided Vinda Rosier in the assistance to get the Lestrange family box in the records room in the French Ministry of Magic. He left the box in the Lestrange tomb for Credence to find. Abernathy stepped into the black flames unharmed at Grindelwald's rally and passed right through it. His magical abilities are apparition, his wand is unknown length, and he has an unknown core. Rudolf Spielman, uh, so the guy that was originally driving the carriage that Abernathy casted that uh, spell, uh, that slowing charm so he could survive but swap the carriages so he can get Grindelwald to freedom, was born in Germany before 1910. He worked as the head of incarceration at the International Confederation of Wizards. He participated in Gellert Grindelwald's extradition uh, from Makusa, so they were transporting him to Europe uh, from the magical, uh, magical 
administration in the United States. So they were transferring from the United States of America to Europe um, and was the only survivor in Grindelwald's escape. He was eventually present at the Brit British Ministry of Magic to discuss Newt Scamander's travel ban and traveled to Grindelwald's rally in an effort to speak with Albus Dumbledore to get Albus Dumbledore to stop Gellert Grindelwald. His skills were magical mastery, charms, nonverbal magic, so you can tell this guy was really powerful, and apparition. Uh, Macduff. So Macduff, uh, he was among the dark wizards of Gellert Grindelwald's most loyal alkylates. He was born before 1927. They don't know the exact day, but he was born before then. Uh, he accompanied Gellert Grindelwald to Paris for the rally. Uh, and wore a chain decorated with a number of items, including a rabbit's foot and human teeth. Craft. He was a loyal acolyte to Grindelwald um, it, until uh, he disapparated away after passing through the blue flames and did not participate in any battles uh, supporting Grindelwald thereafter. Um, and so that, that's what happened. And, um, you know, he didn't make it through the blue flames is what happened. So uh, Nagel was one of Gellert Grindelwald's most loyal alkalites as well. He was born before 19, uh, 1927. And he was one of the seven most trusted acolytes and was told to keep an eye on Credence by Grindelwald when he was featured in Circus Arcanus. Uh, what was Gellert Grindelwald's purpose, right? I know y'all are probably thinking that. Well, he's often considered the third most powerful wizard of all time. So this goes back to our big point here that we're making today on today's episode. So like some of the most powerful dark wizards of all time and most powerful witches. He is often considered the third most powerful wizard of all time. He attended Durmstrang and only falling behind Albus Dumbledore and Voldemort. He was expelled from Durmstrang for dark experiments and near fatal attacks on students. He ultimately established a power base in the Neumengard Castle in Austria. Dumbledore and him made a blood pact to never fight each other, but ultimately Grindelwald wanted to be a master of death. We'll go over more of this in Deathly Hallows, but he was thought that this was he thought this was for the greater good, and he must choose uh, that he must choose um and he was going to do this uh choose to make this occur um out of choice so uh, basically he just wanted to build an empire and take everything over but gellert grindelwald a lot of people have the question why does he have different colored eyes so this is more of kind of like a theory because it's not exactly explained yet and i think we'll find out in other movies because they're still planning to make two other movies i'm pretty sure um but so the condition is actually known as heterochromia it's often actually seen in animals believe it or not so um but the big thought is the reason he has two different color eyes is because going back to the whole idea with that skull hookah where he could see the visions is because he is a seer, which we've talked about seers a lot on the show, like Professor Trelawney, how they can see into the future and see things that are to come that haven't come yet. Um, but he uh, he was, it, it's thought that like one eye was so that he could see the visions out of one eye, and then the other one was just like kind of normal. 
another theory is it could be more like a magical eye from like Mad Eye Moody, like how he has his. Um, and then the other theory, this has a lot of backing because Johnny Depp uh, was in an interview about it on why he has quote unquote a scary eye. So like a one eye looks different than the other. Uh, and they think it's more because like he kind of has two different personalities is what Johnny Depp was saying, but hopefully they expand more on this later. But so uh, the theory is the eye represents his dark side and the normal eye represents his light side. This is because he wasn't exactly all dark. He was capable of love and humanity, unlike Voldemort, which they say was just all dark. Uh, he was asked about the scary eye in an interview. Johnny Depp says, it's a character choice. I saw Grindelwald as more than one, if you know what I mean. I almost feel like he's maybe two people. He's twins in one body. So a gamey eye is more like the other side of him, sort of like a brain for each eye. An albino twin, he's somewhere in the middle. So that that's pretty cool. Uh, I guess he's kind of more like, it makes me wonder if he's almost like a schizophrenic or something, but hopefully they expand more on that and why he has two different eyes, because that was something I was really wondering. Um, but it does confirm that like his eyes are connected with the duality of his character. So it goes back to show what I was saying. Like, I mean, Grindelwald wasn't exactly like Voldemort, how he was just trying to exterminate all purebloods. Like he didn't like them, but that wasn't his ultimate goal, right? Just like he said, you know, there's too many of them to do that, that he was saying to Vinda. Uh, his ultimate goal is basically you know, he wanted to be a master of death and build an empire. Um, and he was always contradicting himself with what's kind of right and wrong. But ultimately, he wasn't pure of heart, don't get me wrong, but he believed what he was doing was right. Um, and it wasn't just uh, to exterminate people how Voldemort was. However, he was definitely, uh, I would say, really close he's definitely in like the higher end of brutal wizards of course i'm going to tell you about two really really dark ones uh before we this before we end this episode but so uh it is said uh actually sorry not two more films so it said three more films could be on the way nothing has been confirmed about grindelwald's eyes yet um and they're hoping more about this comes in the next fantastic beast film so Matagots, back, so finally, you're about to find out what those were. So those are really cool. So um, they're from France. They have light blue eyes. They resemble a cat in appearance. So really creepy. It almost made me think of like the, like nine tails or something from Pokemon. Speaking of the Pokemon anniversary, right? Or like, uh, you know, how they had those like dark Eevee ones later that were like, um, I guess evolved or whatever. But the Matagots, they're from France. They have light blue eyes, and they resemble a cat in appearance. They're capable of multiplying. Normally, they're harmless, but are vicious when provoked. They're resistant to most uh, forms of magic and spells and can multiply themselves upon being hit with offensive spells, with offensive spells, such as stunning spells. And they can turn into ordinary black cats to keep low profiles as well. So you wouldn't even know they're there because they're kind of prowling around just as black cats. But these things are, 
are vicious uh, when they change into uh, uh, when they turn into their form, right? And uh, it it looks it looks really creepy. Like they have like the blue eyes. They're black with the big teeth. Um, so definitely look them up. I'll put a picture of them on the website. But so the French Ministry of Magic. So a little bit about them. So they were founded in 1970. Sorry, they were founded in 1970 and located in Paris, France. They were established with spells surrounding it. Uh, it was established with spells surrounding it to stop witches and wizards from being able to disapparate off their premises. So if you're going in there, you're not disappearing out. Like they're gonna question you what you're doing here. <laughs> you're not gonna be left without questioning. If you can get past the archivist, well, someone's gonna be questioning you when you get out the door. The visitor's entrance is located at the Wallace Fountain. It serves as uh, it's located on the grounds of Place de Fermensburg, uh, so Fursenburg uh, Square. It's found in the sixth district of Paris. If a person stood in the middle and coughed, roots of the surrounding trees rose up into a birdcage elevator, and then it descended below the ground. Level one, uh, the atrium is on the main level. It welcomed visitors and found uh, found out what business they had at the ministry, just like you know you call on the phone. Uh, two floors down, the Department of Magic in the mail room was located there. Uh, on floors uh, on floor three is down in the records room is where that is. Uh, the French Ministry of Magic was very similar to Macusa, so the Magical Administration Congress of the United States of America, and the British Ministry of Magic. These included. Um, uh, so I'll tell you what their names are, and I'll tell you um, what it is. Uh, but it's called the Bureau de la Justice. So they dealt with. Uh, uh, Bureau de la Justice Magique. So it dealt with the capture of dangerous criminals is what that one dealt with, that department. The second department is the Bureau des Magic Communications. So they dealt with magic publications and communications. So such as like the Daily Prophet, that sort of thing. Uh, Bureau des Aurores. So they dealt with Aurores in France. The Bureau, Bureau des Affairs gastro magiques so they dealt with gastro magical affairs so like fred and george gas is very interesting um then the bureau of de accidents l catastrophes magiques so they dealt with magical accidents and catastrophes is what that um that department did there um bellatrix was actually uh, going back full circle here so bellatrix was often argued as one of the most evil witches in wizarding history However, here's one thing that I often get asked. In my opinion, who do I think is the most evil witch in history? In my opinion, the most evil witch in history, we've talked about her before, actually in Sorcerer's Stone, interesting facts, which is very interesting. We keep bringing up a lot of that today. Um, but Morgana Le Fay, and remember uh, Ron even said, I got Morgana again. I have about six of her when they were on uh, the train when he pulled out her chocolate frog card. Morgana Le Fay, in my opinion, is probably the most evil, most powerful witch. And Bellatrix is up there, don't get me wrong. But uh, Morgana actually means the word fairy. Um, she is actually in our folklore as well, a little bit. But uh, as we talk about mainly just the Harry Potter folklore here. But she has a chocolate far, f frog card. 
So she has a chocolate frog card. She was born in 982 or later. They're not sure exactly what date, but she was actually known as Merlin's nemesis. Uh, she was Merlin's half-sister, and she was an animagus that usually took the form of a bird and was known for heal her healing skills, which I've said that before in our interesting uh, facts for Sorcerer's Stone on that episode. Uh, she constantly plotted to take over Arthur's throne, so, you know, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. And Merlin constantly fought against her, uh, and she was his rival. Her skills, she was extremely versed in the dark arts, and she was extremely skilled in healing and transformation. See, she was assumed uh, to be a witch and a profound sorceress. Uh, so the sorceress conjuring the dark magic there. Uh, Morgana um, has fought Merlin and all of the Knights of the Round Table at one time in some myths. Uh, she had the intent of taking over Camelot. Her reasons were thought to be just pure evil is what they say. Uh, her idea was to rival Merlin, and it can be argued that she was uh, the most evil and powerful witch of all time. So with that being said, uh, we'll go over to one of the most good witches of all time and, and powerful witches. So uh, fighting for the good side here. So McGonagall, a lot of people don't know about her history, but a lot of people don't know McGonagall actually worked for the British Ministry of Magic at one point since we've been talking about the ministry a lot. Um, so Minerva McGonagall here. Let's go into a little bit of her background because we haven't talked about her much on our show so she's a scottish half-blood witch and had two brothers malcolm and robert jr her father uh she never knew uh her father never knew that her his wife isabel was a witch so um so mcgonagall's father uh and and mother were married but the father never knew his wife isabel was a witch Isabel, like McGonagall, was also captain of her school Quidditch team and top of her class in charms. Isabel was always kept uh, kept in from her husband, Robert, so she never expressed the fact that she was a witch. Um, but when Minerva was born, she showed really strong signs of magical ability, which, because of this, she was forced to tell Robert that she was a witch um, Robert actually wasn't even upset that she was or that she had magical ability. It was the fact that she kept this from Robert all these years. It brought a big problem in their house because he felt like there were so many secrets that were kept from him. Um, but she told him this when McGonagall, what she would wind up doing, ironically, because, you know, she's an animagus and can transform into a cat, you know. Uh, she actually was having the family cat do her bidding for her, and she would talk to the family cat. Uh, she would, uh, every now and then, she would summon toys, so she, like summoning charm, uh, just summon a toy from across the room. So it definitely brought up um, an alarm with Robert and Isabel, uh, which they Isabel had to tell Robert her secret. Um, so Robert soon uh, discovered after that Malcolm and Robert Jr. were also had magical abilities. McGonagall ironically became closer with her father, though, than her mother, uh, which is why she grew really fond of muggles over all the years. 
She attended Hogwarts and was the most talented student of her entire class and was the Gryffindor Quidditch captain, uh, just like her mom was also a Quidditch captain. It doesn't say uh, what house her mom was in or like what uh, captain she was, but I thought it was pretty cool. Uh, she did show strong ability and transfiguration, of course. In the sorting ceremony, McGonagall was a rare occurrence like Harry Potter and Hermione Granger. Uh, so it took more than five minutes to decide what house to put her in. In McGonagall's case, the hat deliberated for five and a half minutes before it made its decision. This is kind of like me too, ironically. So uh, the hat debated whether she should be put into Gryffindor or Ravenclaw. She was sorted into Gryffindor. So really funny because I I've told y'all before, you know, before I made a new Pottermore account, I was actually sorted into Ravenclaw and now I'm not in Ravenclaw anymore and I'm in Gryffindor. And then ironically, people it's funny because people kind of say it's kind of like Harry because my Patronus is a grass snake. So maybe I speak Postletongue. Maybe that's why. <laughs> but so McGonagall graduated with top grades in her owls and newts upon graduating. She was offered a position at the Department of Magical Law Enforcement at the British Ministry of Magic, uh, which was, you know, everyone knows is responsible for upholding wizarding law. Before starting in the role, uh, she returned home to spend with her family, where she wound up meeting Dougal McGregor, who played like a played a really prominent role in her life. So Dougal McGregor was a Muggle farmer that lived in the uh, same town as McGonagall that she grew up in. Uh, McGregor wound up proposing to McGonagall, and McGonagall uh, accepted his offer. McGonagall. Uh, retained the information though just like her mother that she was a witch um, because she didn't want it to cause any issues uh, or her to think less of uh, or him to think less of her um, she considered telling him but never did and it actually was of fear as well that it would jeopardize her role in the ministry and she could lose her job for revealing that she had magical powers and that um magic would be seen in front of a muggle uh in fear of what would happen what she did was three days later um she wound up returning the ring to Dougal and turned down his proposal minerva began her job at the ministry uh this was one of the most difficult times she's ever had but at the ministry uh it is said Dougal constantly would send letters trying to win her back uh, and at the time, there were strong divides between the magic people and muggles. Um, often, uh, people uh, in Minerva's job would talk down about muggles, but because she had such a close relationship of her father, she was greatly offended by that. Um, and she constantly had arguments with colleagues and just really didn't get along with a lot of people there. And at the same time, Dougal's letters made it difficult for her to focus. Uh, but despite all this, she still did excellent at her work and was able to put it out of her mind. Um, just she didn't like the environment. But her talented work actually got the attention of Austin Stone um, Eckhart, Austin Stone Eckhart, who was her boss at the time. Um, and Eckhart... Um, but, and he was like really impressed by it. But despite all that, though, McGonagall 
eventually informed Austin Stone Eckhart, that was her boss, that she would be leaving the ministry and she just couldn't do it anymore. Eckhart even offered her a promotion, but she declined it and eventually applied at Hogwarts that had a position posted for the Transfiguration Department. And she started working directly under Albus Dumbledore. Um, in the book, actually, short stories from Hogwarts and Heroism, Hardships, and Dangerous Hobbies by J.K. Rowling, you can find that it was revealed that Dougal was murdered by Death Eaters after he married another woman after the first Wizarding War when Voldemort was riding, rising to power. Um, McGonagall, it tore her up from this because she thought if she had just married Dougal, she could have actually protected him from what happened from the Death Eaters, and uh, she was just distraught. Um, she actually, uh, you know, Albus and her wound up becoming close during this because Albus uh, was really the only person she talked to during this time, and she became really close to Albus because uh, he had learned about what happened to Dougal and the Death Eaters murdered her, uh, murdered um, Dougal because, uh, you know, during the whole rise of power of Voldemort. And Albus tried to get McGonagall to join the Order of the Phoenix, and she wouldn't. Uh, she actually refused. Because of that, because of what happened to Dougal, she actually openly stated a, uh, well, she, she made a promise to herself to make sure uh, that doesn't happen to anyone else, to try to fight for that, but she didn't want to, uh, fight to kill so what she did was she actually worked as a spy uh, for the ministry during the first order of the phoenix that she wasn't a part of uh, what she would do is she would transform into a cat and uh, would relay information to aurorers aurorers who would actually track them down apprehend and kill them um, of the death eaters uh, she wound up losing her brother robert jr in the first wizarding war as well uh, he was killed by Death Eaters. Um, because of the loss of her brother, she actually then stopped working at the ministry as a spy because she felt guilty about that. Um, Austin Stone Eckhart actually, uh, still trying to get her attention after she left, uh, proposed to McGonagall. Um, and after multiple times of saying no, she eventually accepted the proposal there. They got a house uh, in Hogsmeade, actually, so she could still work at the school and be close uh, when she um, was working at Hogwarts. And in 1985, Eckhart actually passed away from a mysterious tentacular bite. Uh, it's even wondered if it was Death Eaters or people plotting from the ministry. Um, it's thought that it was still Death Eaters today. But after Eckhart died, uh, she moved back into Hogwarts grounds uh, and put all her attention into her work, where this is where uh, she still resides today. Um, McGonagall, a lot of people don't know, she actually can produce a cat Patronus, um, which is really cool. Um, which uh, is just so much information back on the backstory of McGonagall. And uh, Josh and I were talking, a really awesome McGonagall, if they wind up making that Harry Potter um, television HBO series, uh, if it was, you know, if she was a little bit older, Emma Watson would make an excellent McGonagall. Like, she would make an excellent McGonagall now for, like, crimes against uh, Grindelwald. Like, if they, the early McGonagall in her 20s and 30s, she would be perfect at that. Um, but another person that actually can make a cat Patronus, which is very funny because a lot of people don't know 
uh, umbrage can produce a cat patronus and a lot of people don't know evil witches and wizards can't produce patronuses and the reason why is because you have to be you have to have happy thoughts and be pure of heart someone that's not pure of heart can't produce a patronus however umbrage is able to do so and i'm about to tell you why so patronus from evil witches and wizards who can so bellatrix voldemort uh dolahev are all three wizards that are known that cannot produce a Patronus. Uh, and this is because they have never had happiness in them. Uh, so those are the three that are known. Uh, a lot of wizards that are Death Eaters, the only Death Eaters to be known to have produced a Patronus is uh, Cerberus Snape, which is my boy, of course. But it's just interesting because it makes you wonder if any of them do have purity um, but the argument to it also is a lot of dark wizards don't feel like it's even necessary in their arsenal. Like, why is it even necessary if they can just, you know, shout out the killing curse or one of the three killing curses or something, right? But the types of Patronuses, just to review that with you real quick. So there's Corporeal Patronus. So that's one that is fully formed, taking the shape of a bright silver translucent animal. So like how Harry formed the stag. Hermione formed the otter. Um, yeah, that's one thing we didn't mention uh, last episode. Hermione formed the otter, which is really cool. Um, it, and this is, of course, the strongest form of Patronus. And you got to have pure, hap- you got to be pure of heart and have happiness of thoughts, the happiest of thoughts. Incorporeal Patronus is no particular shape and can't protect against the mentors. This is the only one known that Neville was able to do, from what I'm sure of. Um, because it's not known what his Patronus was. So it's always thought that his Patronus that he could produce was just incorporeal, which is still great. It's just not the highest form of Patronus, and it's not going to protect you against the mentors either. Um, So Umbridge's Patronus. So Dolores Umbridge, a little bit about her, and then this is going to explain why she actually is able to have a Patronus if these evil witches can't do it because they're not pure heart. And you're probably thinking, you know, Umbridge, she's probably one of the most sick and twisted people out there. Well, that's very true. Don't get me wrong. She most definitely is. But I'm going to explain why she's still able to produce a Patronus. So Dolores Umbridge, a British half-blood witch she was, ironically, and she's always fighting thinking pure blood's right, and she's not even a pure blood herself. It's kind of like Hitler, how he always wanted like a blonde hair and blue-eyed person, right? But he wasn't even that himself, so very interesting with Umbridge. Uh, so she's a British half-blood witch. You filthy half-blood! So she's a British half-blood witch. She, Her father was Alfred Umbridge, and her mother was Ellen crack uh aaron oh sorry ellen e-l-l-e-n cracknell so her father was alfred umbridge and her mother was ellen cracknell Uh, she had a younger brother who is actually born a squib ironically um dolores's family uh was um very embarrassing to her that it said so her father was a floor mopper in the Ministry of Magic, so he mopped floors, which there's nothing wrong with that, but you can see how Dolores would be embarrassed by that. Um, Dolores blamed her mother for birthing a squib, so of course her brother uh, was a squib. Dolores loathed that her mother had hated her 
just because she was muggle-born. Uh, her parents were eventually divorced, and Dolores chose to live with her father uh, so she could stay connected to the magical world. She attended Hogwarts at age 11 and was sorted into the Slytherin house. No surprise there. Her wand was an 8-inch birch wand with dragon heartstring core. <laughs> Same core as me, ironically. But um, And it's here's the thing, guys. is um, So it's said by Ollivander that people with shorter wands are usually lacking in characteristics. Usually it's thought like the height of the wand, it go, usually the length of the wand goes with the height. That is, you know, majorably, for the majority of things, true because, you know, you want to measure out the height of something. But it's also said that if you have a shorter wand, you could be lacking something in character, which will kind of add to my point a little bit here. But so Ollivander had a quote that said, uh, the length of a witch's or witch's the length of a witch's or wizard's wand can be an indicator of moral character. Um, most wands are between 9 and 15 inches long. Wand makers often match the wand length with the height of the witch or wizard who will use it, but Ollivander's considers this inadequate. In his experience, longer than average wands tend to be drawn to physical uh, pecul uh, peculiarity peculiarity or a bigger personality, whereas a shorter one tends to draw to people whose characters lack something. Um, and what you see, you know, I mean, yes, Umbridge was kind of short and not the most attractive person in the world. Um, she had, but I mean, keep in mind, eight inches, like eight inches flat, that's really short. Like mine, I'm a short person. Like I'm only like five, seven. Mine was still like nine and a half inches or something like that. I'll try to look it up and, and see what mine was. Um, but uh, it says by age three, Umbridge actually secured a position. Or sorry, not by age three. That would be really funny if it was age three and she was that young. But by age 30, Umbridge actually secured a position uh, as the head of improper use of magic office in the Ministry of Magic. And she was known as a deranged... Um, a deranged stickler for the rules. So she always believed this was morally right. Yeah, and actually, take it back. So I thought mine was nine. Mine was is uh, maple wood with a dragon heart string core at 12 and a half inches. So, I mean, 12 and a half is a lot bigger than eight, and I'm a short person. So, like, she has definitely a really short wand, so it definitely shows she's lacking something in character. Just throwing that out there. Um, but by age 30, Umbridge secured a position as the head of improper use of magic office and was known as deranged, uh, so deranged that she was a constant stickler for the rules and even Slughorn mentioned in school when she was a child that uh, she, was, she, was, uh, ne she would never be top of her class because she was idiotic. Um, so it just goes to show like something's more messed up with her moral character so here's the argument right so um this actually leads into i'm going to talk about this for a little bit uh there was actually a dark wizard these are two of the darkest wizards i consider of all time um this is actually the one i consider the darkest wizard of all time and this leads into 
my theory on umbrage on why she can do this um but um roxidian uh so he was an ancient dark wizard um and so the story on this is one this is one of the first times patronuses were ever to be accounted for or produced uh that is recorded so the story with roxidian is basically so this girl elias uh was in this village with villagers of wizards and witches and he wanted to force his hand on her and force his hand in marriage and the village town wasn't going to stand for it so what happened was a long story short they rose up against him and he wanted to try to conjure a patronus on them but it didn't go his way and i'm going to tell you that story in just a minute i don't want to give it all away right now but so Raxidian, what happened was, um, so there's a widespread justified belief that a wizard is not pure of heart, cannot produce a successful Patronus, but the most famous backfiring of this was Roxidian, who was devoured by maggots. And uh, I'm going to tell you about that. A few witches and wizards of questionable morals have succeeded in producing the Patronus charm, Dolores Umbridge is one of those exceptions, that it can protect herself from Dementors by producing a cat Patronus. It may be of truth and confident belief that in the righteousness of one's actions, she uh, can supply necessary happiness to produce a Patronus. However, most such men and women who become desensitized to the effects of the dark creatures with whom they may ally themselves regard their Patronus as an unnecessary spell to have in their arsenal. And that's from Pottermore.com. So, one, it says that dark wizards and witches, usually they get to the level of, like, why do they even care about a Patronus? So, obviously, you know, Dolores was probably came in really close contact on the opposite side of Dementors and was being attacked at one point to ever have needed this. But what this truly says is it says two things to me, right? It says two things. It says, one, that she's so sadistic and messed up that her moral actions, she actually believes what she's doing is right in that, you know, such as like all, you know, is writing on people's hands i will not tell lies and her cruel and unusual punishment and the stickler for the rules going all the way back to when she was a child in the beginning because she truly believes it's right she's purely happy when she's doing this and uh purely righteous because it's a whole righteous thought that i'm doing what's right and i'm going to convince you to do it because i want you to do solely the right thing for the greater good which produces happiness and righteousness so because of that she was able to produce her own patronus uh also because i mean i also believe it's because she really conjured a patronus because she was probably in that situation which we'll talk about a little bit on more um we talked about on this week's episode on how you know she went out to the forest uh, if you got through the whole thing yet. So I know you kind of got to break that one up in parts. 
But, you know, when she got out to the centaurs and got in that situation, like, it'd be a situation like that, a life or death situation, and I, uh, she would have to use it for her own greater good, but she could actually produce it because her moral uh, justifications were so screwed up, she believed it was actually right and actually had uh, true, pure heartedness so she could produce a cat Patronus, which makes entirely sense because if you go back even to Dolores Umbridge's office with the cats in there, uh, what does she really identify with? Just like McGonagall, she was always identifying with the cat as well with her transformations as an animagus and also when she was even a kid. Um, you know, teaching the family cat to do their biddings. Like, so it was perfect for her. So it makes complete sense, but it's also messed up because it even shows if, like, Voldemort, if he really could believe what he was doing was right. But deep down, it shows he has moral character knowing he's doing what's wrong and doing it for the intent, which is why he can't produce a Patronus. So because of that, because... Umbridge is so sadistically messed up in the head, like really psychotic, psychotic, like mentally psychotic, like needs to go back to St. Mon- Mungo's um, for magical melodies, you know, like she needs to go back to St. Mungo's hospital because she's got her morals are so screwed up down to her core like she's always been this way, which is why she's truly happy when doing these things. In believing it's pure of heart for the greater good, which is why she can produce her Patronus. So that's why on that. Now going to probably what I would say, going to our big picture here today, you know, what is the darkest wizard of all time? Like what would you consider as the darkest wizard of all time? I'm going to tell you a few that you can consider that you've never thought of. And I'm going to tell you the one I think that is the darkest wizard of all time to me and that's Raxidian, and Raxidian is sick. Um, and some uh, actually think it's uh, Chrysdis, which is another one, and I'll tell you his story as well, which is pretty bad. Um, and then, of course, you know, some thinks it's Gellard Grindelwald, some thinks it's, uh, some thinks it's also, you know, Gellard Grindelwald, some thinks Credence could be up there. I don't think it's really Credence, but, um, and, uh, you know, the darkest wizard of all time, a lot of people consider is Voldemort. So it depends what you call dark and what you call powerful. Um, I would probably rank this guy, Raxidian, up as the darkest if we're considering just darkest, not powerful, as powerful. Um, but I would say darkest and probably sickest. Um, so Raxidian um, was a dark wizard. It's actually even theoried that either him or Chrysdis fathered the Dementors. The reason they think he fathered them is because the story is so old and it goes back so far um, that this was really the one of the first stories recorded in regards to Patronuses. So Raxidian, a dark wizard, uh, he actually lived with a colony of Dementors, which remember they... It said they multiply by filth where they leave. They live in something that they live in places of complete disgust, right? So just imagine that. So he's a dark wizard who lived with a colony of Dementors in a black castle surrounded by nearby mountain ranges uh, where there was a small village below the mountains that fellow witches and wizards lived. Raxidian noticed a beautiful girl, Eliana, who sent a message to her parents. Uh, demanding her hand in marriage. The parents refused. Raxidian 
threatened to send dementors to destroy the entire village and kill her parents and everyone in the village unless Eliana uh, was brought to him. The villagers fought against Fraxidian and were basically like, we're not going to stand for this. So the villagers, uh, Raxidian sent the Dementors on the villagers around the whole village. The villagers conjured Patronuses and kept Raxidian's Dementors at bay. However, uh, he kept sending more and more Dementors from the castle. Just as it seemed, all hope was lost, uh, and they became, became to be overwhelmed by Dementors. Ilias, who was a young, shy orphan, who had been told to sit out of the battle because he was so young and his age saw what was happening to the village and uh, saw what was happening to his his fellow friends and family and how they were being killed uh, and getting their souls sucked out uh, and then what happened was he with the most pure of heart uh, fighting for what's right would like one last moment burst to fight off everything there, you know, just swinging for the fences, Hill Mary here, uh, conjured a mouse Patronus and casted a massive uh, mighty Patronus, Expectro Patronum! And a mouse Patronus sprang from Elilius's wand and shined brilliantly and halted all Dementors around the village. Enraged that something so small should stop him, Raxidian decided to stop the boy himself. So ultimate David and Goliath matchup here. Raxidian chose to try to summon his own Patronus from his wand to warn off Ilias's mouse. However, he failed to know that a witch or wizard that summons a Patronus must be pure of heart. For the first time in history, it was recalled what happens. It was shown what happens when a competent witch or wizard conjures a Patronus and is not pure of heart. Maggots shot out from the end of Raxidian's wand and quickly devoured him as they engulfed his entire body. Raxidian was known for the dark arts. His wand is unknown length and core. And he has a castle of Dementors that he lived in. Talking about dark wizards, like, think about how messed up this guy is. He was forcing this girl's hand in marriage to rape her, is basically what he's doing. Absolutely sick. Not to mention, uh, he lives in a castle full of Dementors that is actually absolutely sick. Able to control them, of course, but, like, they live in filth, disgust, they suck out souls. Literally no happiness was in that place. Like, literally imagine living in Azkaban. And there's so much unknown about him, and he was around for so long. So messed up, he was willing to cast a Patronus, impure of heart, willing to fight against any, like, just nothing but pure evil. Like, imagine what this guy could have caused if he was in Voldemort's day. Like, if I saw a fight between Raxidian and Voldemort, it would be very... Uh, it's very interesting to see who would win. It is thought uh, Raxidian is also one of the first people to control Dementors. Um, and this is all in the Wonder Book of Spells. And you can also find it on Pottermore.com. Eliana, ironically, so Eliana went on to marry Ilias, who is still hailed as a hero and one of the earliest 
uh, conjures of a corporeal Patronus. So the next one here, so another really dark wizard is a Chrysdis. So a lot of people will actually call him the darkest wizard of all time. But a Chrysdis man, um, some call him the darkest wizard of all time, and it's actually assumed that he was the person that created Azkaban, uh, believe it or not. So um, he was a practitioner of the dark arts, and some say even Voldemort's dark arts were seen as lighthearted. Um, he located, he discovered the island Azkaban was originally built on, which is located in the Northern Sea, uh, and he was using it for experimentation. He's almost described as like a serial killer kind of murderer. What Akrizdis did was he put concealment charms on the island so you couldn't see it, and he would lure witches and wizards to the island were on the island he would torture and murder them like who knows if he would rape them or what but he would torture and murder them on the island it is said uh, because of this dark magic a Christus that he was experimenting with went mad and utterly insane uh, the dark arts because of the experimentation there is thought to have created uh, what the building is of the prison of Azkaban, and that's how it was created. And uh, through more experimentation, the Dementors were eventually created there uh, on the island, which it said uh, they there is no really known, uh, they're not, it, no one knows how they breed or how they multiply or create, right? But it's just known that they live in like utter disgust and fungus and like multiply so this place had to be horrible like i imagine like a horror house like the worst horror house ever torture like saw combined with disgust and filth like a saw times a billion <laughs> like a saw times a hundred thousand with dementors on there like probably the worst kind of place ever um the island was known as the one of the darkest and filthiest places uh and Acrisdis was said to live, have lived on the island um, with Dementors uh, and, and the building that was there. And he would use the Dementors to personally torture uh, victims that he personally sought out and researched. It is thought Acrisdis eventually died of a spell that went wrong. And when he died of the spell that went wrong, the spell that counteracted took down the concealment charms on the island and that's when the ministry of magic discovered it so they discovered the island with the building there uh, that had dementors infested on the island uh, the ministry even refused to describe what was going on the island because it was so bad uh, here's a quote it said many in authority thought the building of azkaban had been destroyed others Many in authority thought that the building of Azkaban was best destroyed. Others were afraid of what might happen for the Dementors infesting the building if they deprived them of their home. The creatures were already strong and impossible to kill. Many feared a horrible revenge if they took away a habitat where they appeared to thrive. The very walls of the building seemed 
steeped in misery and pain, and the Dementors were determined to cling to it. Experts who had studied buildings built with it and around dark magic contended that Azkaban might wreak its own revenge upon anyone attempting to destroy it. The fortress was therefore left abandoned for many years, a home to continually breeding Dementors. Eventually, the Ministry of Magic posed the smaller prisons across the wizarding world were too small to use and in result Azkaban was born because they could put more prisoners there uh, this is all mentioned on Pottermore and uh, Harry Potter Wizards Unite is where you can find that uh, quote there and uh, like I was saying no one knows how Dementors breed it's just said um, that they're known to grow like fungus under conditions of despair, unhappiness, and hopelessness. Um, so that kind of goes into my points of like who's kind of the darkest witches and wizards. And we talked about McGonagall being one of the best good witches of all time. And uh, in just a little bit, we're going to jump into where we kind of were in the books there. And then I'm going to go into as far as uh, one of probably the greatest, most powerful, good wizards of all time. And then we'll kind of conclude here in just a bit. But so jumping into the books, remember they were talking, they were in a herbology class kind of going through some things. So some kind of cool, interesting facts here. Now that we've taken a step out of the dark for a minute. Uh, yeah, always know light can be found in the smallest of places. <laughs> in the words of Albus Dumbledore. Um, happiness can be found in the smallest of places. All you got to do is remember to turn to the light. Paraphrase there. Uh, so a, a devil's snare actually was what killed Bodrick Road. So we talked about that uh, in the last couple episodes ago, a couple weeks ago. Um, but it was devil's snare. Uh, and uh, it, remember Professor Sprout even said like, that was no harmless flitter bloom. So a flitter bloom is a long uh, is a plant that has long swaying tentacles, uh, really close resembles devil snare, um, but it's harmless and it's uh, a little bit lighter. It's not as dark as devil snare for the plant it is, um, and so it's like a light green. And witches and wizards would keep it in their home as a plant indoors. Devil snare. So it's a much darker plant than flitter bloom, but related to the same family. Uh, tentacles, it has tentacle-like appendages and suffocates whatever it touches. It cannot stand light or fire. It's used for guarding valuable objects, assassinating enemies, and can be used as a weapon. It constricts and strangles whatever it touches until it's dead. It uses creeper tentacles to constrict victims, and the faster a victim moves, the more tightly it constricts them. If the victim relaxes its mind, the snare will relax their grip on them. It tends to recoil away from fire and stop movement under light. It's recommended to use escape. Uh, in order to escape, it's recommended to use bright lights, bluebell flames, uh, fire-making spells, wand lighting charm, or the Lumos Solemn spell, so Lumos, and will drive away Devil's Snare. So, which most of these can be seen in the film, or if you read the book, uh, they're read in the book. So, like Blue Bell, Blue Bell 
flames. Hermione used that on Snape's cloak when they thought uh, Snape was bewitching Harry's broom. Um, as far as, you know, we know what bright lights are and that sort of thing. Lumos, you remember in the film, in Azkaban, when Harry's like reading his homework, he says Lumos. Or, uh, you know, double snare um, is in, in, in Sorcerer's Stone when Hermione tells him to relax. He's not relaxing, is he? He's definitely not relaxing. And that was in Sorcerer's Stone. So we know what all that stuff is. Uh, and then in the book, remember, she shoots the fire at the devil's snare uh, versus it was like how she shot the light in the film in Sorcerer's Stone. But so uh, Screech Snap. So it's a magical plant that has the ability to move and make noise. Um, it's purple uh, and they can sense emotion and pleasure. Uh, its stem is purple and its leaves are green. Shield Charm. So this is really cool. So. It's invisible uh, and reflects lights and spells, uh, reflects spells and physical forces, protects against jinxes, hexes, and minor curses. Uh, however, shield charms cannot block unforgivable curses. This is just the basic type of shield charm. So I'm gonna tell you all the different types of shield charms because it's a, definitely a necessity uh, when being a witch or wizard, um, which we see them all the time in Harry Potter. and you know, especially in like the dueling club or, you know, the DA, Dumbledore's army, or, and we see a lot in Deathly Hallows with some things that go down. But um, the most famous shield charm actually, so the origin of shield charms uh, took place in 1484 in Poppleton, which was a small village in, Ingle, in England. Ingledon, blah, blah, blah. No, England, haha. So uh, in 1484 in Poppleton, a small village in England, our Earl of Paunchley, who was a tyrant uh, over that village, insisted that local villages, villagers come from miles around to watch his jousting match. Uh, Earl of Paunchley wanted everyone there, even uh, when a young boy, Edmund uh, Godalgate, who actually had fallen out a tree not too far before, broke his leg. Earl of Paunchley still wanted him there as, as a jousting tournament spectator. And Earl said... There is no excuse. You will be accepting for it. You will be, um, it, you, there is no acceptable excuse for missing my event and forced him to go to the event. Earl actually had four henchmen drag Edmund out of bed and shortly followed, uh, his, and put him on a horse and shortly followed by his mother so that they could both watch the performance. And to make an example out of Earl, he, uh, to make an example, Earl tied Edmund to a horse with a joust on his arm, made his mother watch, and made him participate in the tournament. The other knights of the village left the tournament in disgust because of the idea that they would be jousting a young injured boy. And to prove a point, because all the other jousters left the tournament, uh, Earl said that he would joust the boy himself, a little boy, disgusted by the idea. Hannah Cockleford stood up, who was a villager in the crowd. Uh, she stood up from the crowd and coasted, casted a shield charm that knocked Earl off his horse in front of the crowd. It is said that Earl was squashed flat inside his armor, and the shield charm was so strong it knocked the horse back and caused it to land on him. Earl did not die, but his brain was so malfunctioned he was under the impression that he was a donkey 
uh, Donkey Harry Cyril, which is like a type of horse magical creature, uh, from then on. So if someone needs to go to uh, St. Mungo's, because, <laughs> uh, yeah, someone just got fucked up. Yeah, I got to go over to St. Mungo's for magical miladies. Hannah Cockleford, though, uh, she lived in the 15th century. She was a blonde uh, Caucasian white woman uh, known for her ability and charm. So a shield charm, kind of walk you through these. So the most basic form of shield charm, just up and down with your wand, right? And you just go, Protego. So Protego is a shield charm going up and down. There's different variants of that. So uh, Protego Duo is a little bit more powerful. Protego Horbilis uh is a little bit more powerful than that but the biggest thing with that is it's more widespread so it's uh it's just more widespread covers more of an area it's not as much more powerful uh than protego duo uh next from that is actually protego maxima which you've heard that before uh, i know you've heard that before uh protego maxima and it's it's cast as the biggest uh, magical protection barrier, um, which if you've already read Harry Potter or uh, seen the Harry Potter films, you probably saw this uh, in Deathly Hallows, not to give anything away. But um, it's cast with uh, Fianto Duri and Repello uh, Inicum, uh, which Fianto Duri uh, makes magical defenses impenetrable and appears as blue and white. Uh, when you're pointing your wand skyward, which usually you get a lot of witches and wizards to do this with, her, with you, and it forms that shield barrier over wherever you're at. Uh, it strengthens the magical protections. Um, Repelli and Nick, uh, uh, sorry, Repello and Amicum. Uh, so that's when you point your wand skyward, and it appears blue and white as well. But what this does is that same impenetrable shield you just put up with Fianto Duri, it disintegrates anything that hits that shield so that that shield can't be broken. So anything that comes in contact with the barrier. Protego Totalum, so I'm sure you probably heard that before. It's used to repel any intruder from a large area or even can it repel unforgivable curses. So this is like the highest form of a shield charm. Actually, uh, Hermione has done this at one point harry could do it too but uh hermione has uh done this at one point which is a very um very notable moment uh protego diabolica so that's a ring of protective black fire so that was that spell i was telling you about that geller grindelwald did so he did protego diabolica and like it went around whatever he was at, and it forms a ring of protective black fire that burns and casters enemies but leaves their allies unharmed. Incantation is a powerful dark charm. So basically what happens is uh, they start out with the black flames and they turn into blue flames and it gets darker and darker and darker. And what Geller Grindelwald did was he had them test their faith by walking through it, and if they were considered allies... They weren't burned if they weren't considered allies they burned up and they were incinerated so clearly he didn't uh the one guy that burned up he clearly didn't trust him um and geller grinewald did that as raleigh uh so uh going moving right along here from shield charm so harry and cho passed dervish and bangs uh what that is uh remember they went on their date right in our episode we talked about that so that's a wizard repair shop 
it repairs wands. Um, they actually have one at Universal Studios in Orlando and also in California, I'm pretty sure. Um, but it's a souvenir shop. So I was just thinking it'd be really funny if I walked in and like I snapped my wand and I'd be like, hey, can you repair this for me? Like how Juan broke his, how Ron broke his wand a long time ago in Sorcerer, in uh, Chamber of Secrets when Ron broke his wand. Um, but honestly, like they would probably just hand me another one because I had a tip of um, one of my old, sec- my Cedric Diggory wand. So actually that tip was broken for a while and I like asked them to repair it and they just gave me another one. So I bet you if I went into this actual shop though, that's what they would just do. Probably look at me funny. Um, but Sage and Malasweet. So uh, that was being used by for- in Forenz's class. I remember Forenz took over for Professor Trelawney in Divination. They were using that to observe, um, to observe you know, telling so the future, that sort of thing. But both are magical herbs. Uh, Malasweet is actually used in butterbeer to make it extra sweet. Uh, Fortescue. So that's Albus's portrait. So remember when Albus was um, basically like, uh, I will not come quietly, right? But Fortescue said, blatant corruption. I do not make deals with criminals in my day. Uh, And then Albus goes, thank you, Fortescue. That'll do. And this was like during that whole incident, but he was a portrait. But who that was, was he was a British wizard who owned an ice cream parlor in Diagon Alley. Um, And he owned Florin Fortescue's ice cream parlor. In the summer of 1996, he was actually abducted and murdered by Lord Voldemort. Uh, He was an expert on the subject of medieval witch burnings, ironically. And he was known for his knowledge on the history of magic. Uh, he was also known as a great entrepreneur. Uh, Dollish, remember uh, Dumbledore when they were trying to take Dumbledore in? Uh, he said, don't be silly, Dollish, said Dumbledore kindly. I'm sure you are an excellent Aurora. I seem to remember that you achieved outstanding in all your newts. But if you attempt to uh, bring me in by force, I will have to hurt you, said Albus Dumbledore. So Dollish, uh, just a little bit about him. There's not too much about him. Um, but his name is John Dollish. He's actually regarded as an excellent Aurora. Uh, he was the personal bodyguard to Cornelius Fudge at one point. Also worked under Rufus Scrimmageor and uh, Pious Thickness uh, during the Second Wizarding War. Uh, Rufus Scrimmageor uh, became head Aurora under Cornelius Fudge. Um, and that's later on. He plays a big role in Deathly Hallows, actually. Uh, and Thickness, uh, Pious Thickness... He became head of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement later on. So the person before we end up here, and I got a few other things after this, and then we'll kind of sum it up. But uh, so the phrase, this is how this kind of ties in Merlin's beard, Merlin's beard. (laughs) So probably the greatest wizard of all time, it's argued besides Albus. I think that would be a pretty, pretty awesome match if you saw Albus against this person. Um, he's possibly the most powerful good wizard of all time. And that's Merlin, in my opinion. And we talked about him on Sorcerer's Stone, too. Uh, so Merlin was born in 982 AD, according to... So more, Merlin, just like Morgan Le Fay, he's in our folklore and he's also in Harry Potter folklore. So, But here we talk about the Harry Potter uh, folklore version. So... Merlin, uh, quite possibly 
was the most powerful wizard of all time. Good wizard of all time as well, uh, next to Albus Dumbledore. So that's interesting to see who you would put there. But uh, Merlin actually helped Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table uh, fight against his half-sister rival Morgan Morgana Le Fay. Uh, there's a Hogwarts portrait of him. Uh, there's a chocolate frog card of him. He's the founder of the Order of Merlin, which we've talked about before as well. Uh, and this was founded during the Middle Ages. Uh, the Order of Merlin was created with a goal to protect and benefit muggles. He later became... Uh, he later uh it later became so the order of merlin later became the awards that were awarded which we know albus dumbledore is probably one of the most famous uh that he got uh for the order of merlin first class uh for his fight with grindelwald which we'll talk about much later on you know as we get more into deathly hallows but uh so now and we've talked about this before but just to kind of recap this part for you so you all can remember uh, there's the Order of Merlin first class, second class, and third class. So Order of Merlin, uh, the winner gets a color and holds up a gold medal. Uh, first class is acts of outstanding bravery or distinction. It's represented by a green, uh, green ribbon. The second class is achievement or endeavor beyond the ordinary, represented by a purple ribbon. Third class is contributions to knowledge or entertainment which is represented by a white ribbon. And this can be compared to being knighted in the real world, almost like how, in our world, almost like how um, Elton John was knighted, you know, or say, really just getting like, almost like the Medal of Honor, I, I guess like um, Medal of Merit is what they say in The Departed, which is, you know, like the highest honor you have really is what this is. But uh, first class winners, most notable. Uh, remember, like I said, it was Albus Dumbledore for that, um, battle yeah, with Grindelwald, which we'll go into much later on. But uh, Merlin was known for being pure of heart. He was also known for creating laws and legislations about magic around muggles. Um, Hogwarts was created in 990 AD, and he was one of the first students and was actually sorted into the Slytherin house, actually. Um, he uh, So how was Merlin born? I'm sure you all are probably wondering, right? Or like, who was his parents? Like, what's kind of the real backstory of Merlin? So, for Harry Potter, like folklore, and props to Harry Potter theory, because they have some of these quotes. That was on their YouTube. Uh, but this is a very interesting quote here. So, the legend of Merlin says, so, a legend has it that Merlin is the son of a noble woman and an incubus or a demon. Some versions portray his mother as a daughter of a king or a Northumberland. Shortly after Merlin's birth, the little one was baptized and cleansed of the demonic inheritance. He embodies an encounter between good and evil, a kindly servant endowed by his supernatural father. So, very interesting if that's where he got his powers from. Some really dark stuff. That's... It's interesting there. Um, he was exceptionally gifted in charms and is known as a prince of enchantress. So uh, he's really, this is where I would say he's probably the most powerful wizard of all time uh, because he's known as the prince of enchantress. No one's ever gotten that title for being so gifted in charms and so good at charms, which is a huge part of, uh, 
you know, is a huge part of being a master wizard, right? And uh, putting your knowledge to the real world and what you can do. Um, as far as, it's very interesting, his background too with his father being like that, because it reminds me of like Constantine, like Keanu Reeves. Like, yeah, gonna kick some demon ass. <laughs> Hell yeah. Anyway, so uh, Merlin uh, actually, this is cool, uh, studied the cursed vaults in great detail, actually, which we've talked about before, remember, with Jacob Sibling and then Fedora Tonks. Uh, Merlin actually immortalized himself by painting his own portrait, enchanting it, and hanging it on the wall of the school to inform people about the cursed vaults. So that was a big part of him there. Uh, Merlin's message was often in riddles and was difficult to understand. It was fragmented. Actually, who I call uh, Sir Cadogan, a lot of people pronounce him Cadovan. So Sir Cadovan was a fellow, uh, the fellow wizard or knight, you know, we've mentioned so many times in the books. Um, he was actually a fellow wizard and knight at the round table. I mentioned him in my interesting facts before, but he's the one most known to interact with Merlin's portrait and actually solve the riddles and parables and that sort of thing he speaks in. Uh, Sir Cadovan, uh, I call him Cardigan, uh, Sir Cardigan, put your Cardigan on. Um, portrait hangs at the end of the divination corner, and it's known to interact with Merlin's portrait. Some argue that it, Merlin is actually the most powerful wizard of all time because he's known as the Prince of Enchantress, and he was more versed in charms than anyone else ever in history of Hogwarts. Um, and charms is also known as one of the most difficult forms of witchcraft and wizardry to master. Um, he created many spells and uh, witches and wizards today, uh, such as even Expelliarmus. So, like, Harry Potter theory actually mentioned that. Uh, so shout out to them on that. But, like, Expelliarmus, like, he, so many uh, different spells that are used uh, on that, um, that so many different spells are used that you hear that are from Merlin that you didn't even know, which makes him so great. So I would probably rank Merlin... This, I would rank Albus first, in my opinion, as the greatest wizard of all time, and then Merlin's right under him, in my opinion. Uh, so Hermione mentions in the book uh, when the you know she was well, she doesn't mention this, but she's reading uh, articles on job occupations, thinking about like what they're gonna do after you know they take the owls or the in the newts hopefully later on if they graduate like what they're going to do so she's looking at job occupations and she's reading one that says have you got what it takes to train security trolls so a little bit about security trolls so they're specially trained trolls who guard places and objects in wizard society they're considerably more intelligent and less smelly actually albus dumbledore hired security trolls to guard the fat lady's portrait in Prisoner of Azkaban when they thought Sirius Black was on the loose. Um, cultivate, cultivated fungus trade. So remember as the group, so Ron, Hermione, and Harry, they were kind of uh, gearing up to take the owl's examination here. Uh, so they got involved in that cultivated fungus trade, Ron and Harry did, and Ron was going to buy some of these things to like, convince him i guess they don't know if they actually worked to help him on the test to get good grades like almost like how some people claim they 
you know, maybe if they take Adderall or something, it'll help them on tests or do the little ice dance for a snowstorm so maybe they wouldn't have to take it, right? And then Hermione the whole time, like, is like, that's not going to help you. Put that away. And he was like, I was going to buy that. But uh, so the cultivated fungus trade, that's a wizarding company centered on the trade of magical fungi. Uh, Ron lowered his leaflet in the cultivated fungus trade and was watching the conversation wearily. So that's where that comes from. Uh, Fred and George created a diversion near the statue of Gregory the Smarmy. Uh, the, uh, the Smarmy. So uh, remember, that's where they created that diversion. Uh, so then, uh, you know, uh, where they were basically creating a diversion and then wound up leaving the school, as we know from the from the episodes we've talked about. Uh, but they caused all this trouble with Umbridge. Well, Gregory the Swarmy, uh, so he was born in the 12th century. He had bald green eyes, very pale male wizard. He was a medieval British wizard and invented Gregory's unctuous unction, which is a potion that makes the drinker believe whomever he gave the potion, here is his or her best friend. This is really cool how this kind of relates to all the history here. So he wormed his way into King Richard's confidence, earning him a fortune by using the unctuous unction potion. Uh, this is the statue on the first floor corridor, and he is also featured on a chocolate frog card. His magical ability was he was just known for potions. That's all that's really known about him. But he appears in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone video game, and he's also in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets video game both on chocolate frog cards. So here's how cool how it kind of connects to one another with timelines because you're going to see who this all relates to. So King Richard, remember he worked in King Richard's court, kind of sly his way in there with that potion, the unctuous unction potion uh, Gregory the Smarmy made to make King Richard believe he was his best friend so he could work in his court. So King Richard was born in seven, September 8th, uh 1057 and um and or sorry uh he was uh, it was 100 years off haha <laughs> so <laughs> king richard was born september 8th 1157 i wanted to make sure that date was right for you so born september 8th 1157 after gregory the swarmy born in 12th century uh had made the unctuous unction potion and had like wormed his way into King Richard's court because he convinced him that he was his like best friend. Um, well, he was the king in Oxford, England, born September 8th, 1157, and died in April 6th, 1199, in Limousin, France, at age 47. He was a muggle, right? Just King Richard. Um, he was uh, the king of England, and his ancestor, though, was William I. So William I was also known as William the Conqueror. William the Conqueror was born 1028 to September 9th, 1087 is when he died. September 9th, 1087, at age 59, he died. He was the King of England and Duke of Normandy. He led the Norman Conquest on England in 1066, which is, according to our folklore, you know, that's William the Conqueror, where he basically wiped out England um, but the wizard Armand Malfoy, so you're going to find out who he is, was among 
was one of the biggest leaders in his invading army that he used to conquer. After being crowned king, he granted Armand Malfoy a piece of land in Witchsire in return for questionable services which Armand had rendered him. The Norman Conquest was an invasion of England by Norman uh, soldiers in year 1066, led by Duke William II of Normandy, later known as William the Conqueror. A wizard named Armand Malfoy, who is one of the higher ups, the highest ups in the Norman invaders uh, that worked for uh, King William I, William the Conqueror, he was rewarded for the uh, he was rewarded for the unknown that is quoted quote unquote unknown shady and almost certainly magical so he was awarded with a piece of land on Wiltshire his descendants lived in the estate next the next 10 centuries so basically he was this wizard in this um, muggle army that took over all of this area uh, for his conqueror right so it took over all of the invasion of England. So William the Conqueror. So it's saying this is how England was conquered. Was this one wizard used magic to fight all these muggles. And it was basically no contest. Uh, well, so remember his descendants lived in the state that he was given by King William I to honor him for the unknown that he used in the battle. And they lived in it for 10 centuries. Well, this became known as Malfoy Manor, as you know it today. So that's how Malfoy Manor became about. Uh, Armand Malfoy, so he was born in 1066 in France. His descendant family members are Nicholas Malfoy, Lucius Malfoy I, Brutus Malfoy, Septimus Malfoy, Abraxas Malfoy, Lucius Malfoy II. So that's the Lucius Malfoy you know, Draco's father. Draco Malfoy and then Scorpius uh, Malfoy, who is in the Cursed Child. So that's Lucius Malfoy's great, 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 great. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six. So that's his great, 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 great grandfather. So six great grandfathers is who that is of Lucius. Uh, Wiltshire, it just shows how how long everything's been there but wiltshire is a ceremonial county in southwest england its landlocked borders are dorset in the southeast somerset to the west glutenshire to the northwest oxenshire to the northeast beckshire to the east and hampshire to the southeast it's well known for being the location of stonehenge is where that is but uh, so invigoration drought, right? So Harry had to make this in it uh, during his owl's examination, and he got lucky because Snape was absent during this. So it said Harry found now uh, when left well alone, he managed to conceal. He managed to concoct. So Harry found when left well alone, he managed to concoct an invigoration drought quite easily. An invigoration drought. It's known as being ordinary wizarding level. It's uh, an orange and blue potion. It takes three hours to brew. The known ingredients are alitasi leaves, uh, bullywig stings, peppermint, a stewed mandrake, infusion of wormwood, honey water, 
uh, Vervian Infusion, Scurly Grass, and Lovage. Uh, so Alatasi uh, is plant, uh, it's plant produced hysteria and uncontrollable laughter. So it's very interesting. Like I imagine this is what Fred and George would have a lot of ingredients of in their joke shop, but it's plant produced hysteria and uncontrollable laughter. Billywig sting, it causes levitation, including an uncommon poisons in the wide eye potion rumored to be an ingredient in fizzy uh and fizzing whisbies like fred and george you know they're always using those ingredients there uh vervain infusion is a plant with healing properties lovage uh plant similar to celery we've talked about this before um it's got uh fruit seeds that are used in cooking that are used in cooking and it's been used in herbal medicines for centuries it helps digestion. Uh, also talk, and we've talked about lovage before, like I was saying. Um, invigoration drought is known to boost the drinker's energy, um, and it's related to the uh, Vitomics potion, which is blue in color and gives the drinker a burst of energy, and the Girding potion, which is green, red in color, green and red in color, and has a foul odor. It's also used to increase endurance. The maximum dose is no more than two vials, or you can actually die with the girding potion. Note ingredients for the girding potion is dragonfly thoraxes, flying seahorses, doxy eggs, fairy wings. Uh, and how to brew a girding potion is you add one set of fury wings is your first step. Second step, you heat until the potion turns turquoise. Third step, add one measure of doxy eggs. Fourth step, heat until the potion turns pink. Fifth step, add toasted dragonfly thoraxes until the potion turns orange. Sixth step, add one flying seahorse. Seventh step, heat the potion until it turns turquoise. Eighth step, add uh, toasted dragonfly thoraxes until the potion turns purple. Ninth step, ninth step, heat the potion until it turns red. Tenth step, add three measures of doxy eggs. Eleventh step, add toasted dragonfly thoraxes until the potion turns blue. Twelfth step, add three flying seahorses. Thirteenth step, heat until the potion turns green. And that's the final step there. Uh, it is related to the Wiganweld potion, which this is really cool. Um, you're going to really like this if you're a, if you're a potions potions fanatic like me or you're a snape fan you know uh, but it's related to the Wingleweld potion the Wingleweld potion awakens a victim and prevents sleeping it's a blue green color and it's uh taught at hogwarts at the beginner or moderate level um it's told a beginner or moderate could make this potion but its ingredients are six snake fangs uh four measures of standard ingredient which you know, we've talked about standard ingredient before in the show. It's basically like herbs. Uh, six dried billywig stings and two sprigs of wolfsbane. It's used as an antidote for the drought of living death. So remember, we've talked about the drought of living death before. Well, if you want to cure that, this is how you actually do that. So I know a lot of people think there's no cure for it, but there actually is. This is the cure. So step one, add six snake fangs to the mordor. 
Step two, add four measures of standard ingredient to the mortar. Step three, add six dried billywing stings to your cauldron. Step four, heat on a medium temperature for 30 seconds. Step five, finally crush the ingredients that are on the mortar. Step six, add four measures of the crushed ingredients to your cauldron. Step seven, stir three times clockwise. Step eight, wave your wand. Step nine, leave to brew and return in eight hours until it turns copper, then leave it 14 hours after that and it'll turn brass, then leave it 23 hours and it'll turn a pewter color. Step two, add two sprigs of wolfsbane to your cauldron. That was uh, step one of step two. So part one of step two. Part two of step two, stir three times clockwise. Uh, stir, sorry, step two of part two, stir three times anti-clockwise. Step three of part two, wave your wand to complete the potion, and this completes it. So it's related to the bulge eye potion, the revive potion, and the wing and weld potion. Uh, the wingle weld potion heals injuries and replenishes stamina. Uh, it's green, red, pink, and blue. It's for beginners. Uh, known ingredients on that is wing and uh, tree bark, moly, dittany, corkalump ju uh, juice, two drops of flobberworm mucus, and seven uh, chipertal fungus. Uh, seven, uh, seven pieces of chipertal fungus. Uh, Billywing sting slime, a sprig of mint, uh, boomberry, one stewed, uh, steward of mandrake, uh, drops of honey water, sloth brain mucus, salamander blood, ten loonfish spine, spines, uh, unicorn's horn, and wolfsbane. And it's known to cure sleeping drought and the drought of living death. So this will cure both. Uh, so this is the one that's really awesome. So a wizard prince was once used this potion to awaken an unidentified princess who had been given the drought of living death by a hag, Lutetia uh, Somentens. So uh, Lutetia Somanolens um, is the hag's name. And hag, remember, not being derogatory there, it's actually hag is a magical creature. They're basically witches um, that aren't as capable and more magic. So we mentioned them, you know, Hansel and Gretel. That was a hag that caught Hansel and Gretel. So what happened with this potion, and this is, oh, uh, so we get the potion's name right for you. So this is the Wingenweld potion. So the prince smeared it on his lips and kissed the princess awakening her from the deep slumber. Uh, Leticia Samanolins, she served as a source of inspiration in magical fairy tales known for conspiring against a princess in medieval times. Jealous of the daughter of a local king, she tricked a young princess into pricking her finger on it on a spindle, and her plan was foiled by a young prince who smeared Wingleweld potion on his lips and kissed the princess. Some refer to Leticia as Maleficent, also known as the Tale of Sleeping Beauty. So, and then uh, 
Moly is a black steamed white flower plant that can be eaten uh, to counter enchantments. Dittany is a magical plant healing herb used in potion making that helps wounds and skin grow. Horkalump uh, is a red magical potion from Horkalump uh, juice. And that's a Horkalump is a magical beast that resembles a mushroom covered in a sparse black bristles. It's not a plant, a fungal, a fungus, but an animal. Its properties are used for healing. The instructions on that, on how to make this potion, is add salamander blood until the potion turns red. Step one. Step two. Stir until the potion turns orange. Step three. Add more salamander blood, this time until the potion turns yellow. Step four. Stir until the potion turns green. Step five, add more salamander blood until the potion turns turquoise. Step six, heat until it turns indigo. Step seven, add more salamander blood until the potion turns pink. Step eight, heat until the potion turns red. Step nine, add five lionfish spines. Step 10, heat until the potion turns yellow. Step 11, add five more lionfish spines. Step 12, add flobberworm mucus until the potion turns purple. Step 13, stir until it turns red. Step 14, add more flobberworm mucus, this time until it turns orange. Step 15, stir it until it turns yellow. Step 16, add honey water until it turns back to a turquoise color. Step 17, Add another few drops of boomberry juice. Step 18, stir the potion again, then let it simmer for 30 minutes. Final step, step 19, take the potion away from the heat and allow it to cool. When it cools, ready for use. And that is the legend of Sleeping Beauty. It was all because of Wingle, Wingle, Wingenweld, Wingenweld potion is how they say that. So the Wingenweld potion on that. Um, so, and then from there, right? So, uh, looking here for just a minute. So at this point, uh, you know, so we have the wildfire whiz bangs with Fred and George. So what those are is those are enchanted fireworks. Uh, the bulge eye potion that we mentioned that causes eyes to swell, uh, their emerald green colors. The revive potion is used to awaken an unconscious person. That's related to these potions. Healing potion, it's a blood red color. Uh, it replenishes lost health and stamina. Known ingredients on the healing potion are wormwood, uh, bu uh, bubotuber, pus, dittany, and dragon liver. Uh, and this is used heavily in the, in the calamity. Um, actually, you can collect those in the calamity in a lot of Harry Potter video games, and that's what replenishes your health. Not grass. It's a plant with magical properties used in polyjuice potion. Um, not grass mead is also an alcoholic beverage. Remember, as they were coming back from the centaurs, it kept saying how they were stepping on um, not grass and all that stuff. Uh, not grass mead contained 23% of alcohol and included water. Not grass and ferment in honey. It was pressed and bothered. Uh, I'm sorry. It was pressed and bottled by wildfire, uh, sorry, 
Nodgrass and fermented honey, it was pressed and bottled by Wildflower Sprites at the Mystical uh, Madiri. Label described it as extra rich. It was received a Magical Meads Award, and it was sold at Hogshead, and Rubius Hagrid is actually really fond of that drink. Uh, yeah, guys, so this has uh, been an awesome uh, episode today. I know this is kind of a long one, but got a lot of information if we hit you with that long one on Sunday. So uh, thanks, guys, for tuning in. So this is a ridiculous production. This is Chase from Interesting Facts with Chase. I'll see you guys next Wednesday, and signing off. Uh-huh.